0: U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month. At the same time, the unemployment rate rose, but only because hundreds of thousands of people came off the sidelines and started to look for work. An update on the economy coming up on this Friday, the 1st of September. This is WBURS All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins also coming up. Northern Greece is having its worst wildfires the European Union has ever seen. Extreme weather attributed to climate change is partly responsible.
1: Our mind and our soul want to go to fire, but our body, it's uh,
0: very tired. We'll have the latest on the wildfires. People in South Georgia will spend this Labor Day weekend cleaning up the trees and putting up the power lines that Hurricane Idalia pulled down. Weekend for us in the forecast, more of what you're seeing today. It's 4:01. Live from
2: NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. As the southeastern U.S. continues to feel impacts from Hurricane Idalia, the White House is asking Congress for $16 billion in emergency funding to replenish the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Disaster Relief Fund. NPR's Tamara Keith has more.
3: On August 10th, the White House sent an emergency request to Congress for $12 billion in disaster relief funds. That money hasn't come through yet. But with the fires on Maui and in Louisiana, flooding in Vermont, and Hurricane Adalia slamming into Florida and Georgia, the White House Budget Office now says that earlier ask isn't going to be enough. Liz Sherwood-Randall is the president's Homeland Security advisor. Every American
2: expects FEMA to be there if they're experiencing a disaster. And we want to be sure that we can fund that support that these communities will need.
3: Congress returns from recess next week, and the White House is urging swift action.
4: Tamara Keith, NPR News. The White House says it's seeing notable
2: progress by Ukrainian forces as they try to push back Russian defenses in the southern part of the country. In Piers Franco-Ordoñez reports, U.S. officials are now watching how Russia will respond.
5: The military developments have occurred over the last 72 hours against the second line of Russian defenses near Zaporizhia. That's according to White House spokesman John Kirby.
0: We have uh, seen some notable progress that that is not to
6: say that uh, that they that that they aren't mindful that they still got some tough fighting ahead of them uh, as they try to push further south. Uh, they know that better than anybody.
5: He said progress has been slower than the Ukrainians have said they hope to see, but he emphasized that they've been fighting courageously every single day. Kirby also said he was not in position to confirm a Russian government statement that it has shifted its newest nuclear-capable intercontinental ballistic missiles to combat duty. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, The White House.
2: Employers added 187,000 jobs last month, more than economists were expecting. The Labor Department says the unemployment rate rose slightly to 3.8 percent, the highest level since February of 2022. President Biden praised the
7: report. As we head into Labor Day, we ought to take a step back and take note of the fact that America is now. One of the strongest job-creating periods in our history, in the history of our country. And It wasn't that long ago that America was losing jobs.
2: Average hourly earnings are up two tenths of a percent for the month and 4.3% from a year ago, with health care leading the way, followed by leisure and hospitality jobs. Preliminary closing numbers on Wall Street. The Dow up 116 points. that's up to about three-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq down three points. That's down a fraction. The S&P 500 up eight. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston report the number of women coming to Massachusetts for abortion services has risen by 37 percent since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the federal right to abortions. The ruling just over a year ago allowed several states to ban abortions or severely restrict access to them. Researchers at the hospital found people coming to the state from as far away as Texas, Louisiana, and Georgia, which have some of the country's strictest abortion laws. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark has just returned from Maui to view the destruction of the massive fires there. Clark, who is minority whip in the U.S. House, told WBR's Radio Boston what she saw. Walk through Lahaina, in Maui and see just blocks and blocks of ash. Clark says the government has a responsibility to help for the long haul. Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top secret government documents will remain behind bars as he awaits trial. That's after a federal judge again denied Jack Teixeira's appeal for release. In her order today, the judge noted Teixeira's disquieting interest in mass violence. Teixeira has been held since April when he was arrested at his home in Dighton and charged under the Espionage Act. If you think it was a rainy summer in Massachusetts, you're right. National Weather Service meteorologist Bill Leitham says Boston and Worcester both had the second wettest numbers on record.
8: For Boston, they had 20.33 inches of rainfall, and the record rainfall for the summer is 24.89 inches in 1955. And then for Worcester, the record rainfall in 1955 was 24.83 inches. This summer, we came in at 22.91.
0: Latham says much of that rainfall in 1955 can be blamed on two hurricanes. 73 degrees in the Boston area, no rain predicted for the next few days, nothing substantial anyway. Overnight tonight, clear, moonlit skies down to about 50 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine, maybe some fair weather clouds later in the day. Then for Sunday, Labor Day Monday as well, the same thing, sunny, maybe a few clouds around later. Should be sticky, though, for Sunday and Monday, feeling summery as we reach about 80 tomorrow, then the mid 80s, both on Sunday
9: and Labor Day, the holiday Monday. This is WBUR. It's 407. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years.
10: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
9: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hurricane Idalia
6: made landfall in Florida, then ripped through Georgia. The storm destroyed a lot of of trees in the city of Valdosta, and tree service companies are knocking on doors offering to help for a price. We'll have that story in a few minutes.
10: First, as we head into the Labor Day weekend, the Labor Day, the Labor Department is out with a new jobs report. It shows that U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month. That's a slower pace of hiring than we saw earlier in the year. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate inched up to 3.8 percent. And Scott Horsley is here with the details. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. How should we read that 187,000 figure and explain why, if the economy is adding jobs, the employment rate went up?
11: Yeah, hiring has definitely downshifted. Job gains for June and July were also revised lower. Uh, employers are no longer racing to make up jobs that were lost in the pandemic, they're kind of back to a more normal hiring mode. At the same time, a whole lot of new workers came off the sidelines last month, and not all of them found jobs right away, so that's why you see the uptick in the unemployment rate. That surge of new workers is actually a a pretty good sign. It generally means people are feeling good about job prospects. Uh, They're not so worried about COVID anymore. Of course, it could also be a sign that people have bills that they need to pay, so they're looking for work. Uh, But we have seen a gradual growth in the number of available workers for several months now, and then a big increase in August. That's something President Biden celebrated at the White House Rose Garden today.
7: More than 700,000 people joined the labor force last month, which means the highest share of working age Americans Are in the workforce now than at any time in the past 20 years even though
11: unemployment ticked up
7: just a bit it's still under
11: four percent it's been under four percent for the last 19 months which is the longest stretch like that since the late 1960s and the unemployment rate for african americans which has been bouncing around in recent months was down in august it fell to 5.3 percent
10: when you parse these numbers which industries are adding jobs
11: Uh, The gains are pretty broad-based, actually. Healthcare added a lot of jobs last month. Hospitality continues to add workers. We also saw gains in construction, which has held up very well, even uh, though interest rates are on the rise. A lot of those new construction workers are not building houses. They're working on commercial buildings or big public works projects. Uh, We did see some job cuts last month. About 37,000 trucking jobs were lost after the big yellow trucking company went out of business. And movie production lost about 17,000 jobs as a result of the ongoing actors and writers' strikes. Most other industries are still hiring, though, although Nancy Vandenhouten Houten of Oxford Economics says job growth has definitely slowed down.
12: From the Fed's perspective, that's what they want to see, kind of a period of below-trend growth in employment, which they view as necessary to bringing inflation down.
11: The Fed has been worried that the job market was out of balance, with demand for workers far outstripping supply. Today's report paints a picture of a more balanced job market, and forecasters now think it's increasingly likely that the Fed will leave interest rates unchanged when policymakers meet later this month.
10: So is the Fed done fighting inflation?
11: No. Uh, Inflation has come down a lot, from over 9% last summer to just over 3% in July, but that is still above the Fed's target of 2% inflation, Uh, so don't expect to see the central bank start cutting interest rates anytime soon. The good news is that workers' pay is now going up faster than consumer prices. Uh, Today's report shows the average wages in August were up 4.3% from a year ago. That should be more than enough to outpace inflation. And even though paychecks are not growing as fast as they were a year ago, those paychecks are now stretching further. So workers have seen a real increase in their buying power.
10: NPR's Scott Horsley with the labor numbers this Labor Day weekend. Thank you.
11: You bet. Two years ago, the U.S. took
6: in tens of thousands of Afghans fleeing their collapsing country in Operation Allies Welcome. They were given a temporary immigration status called Humanitarian Patrol parole, allowing them to live and work in the U.S. The program was scheduled to end for many in coming weeks. The Biden administration announced in May it would extend the program to the relief of those 77,000 Afghans who risked their lives working for the U.S. military. But concern is growing as Afghans wait to find out their status. Some are weeks away from losing their jobs. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports.
5: Men sit with folders and plastic grocery sacks bulging with documents at the Center for Refugee Services in San Antonio. Many of them need help filling out government forms. A new one arrived the week before, asking for updated contact details. Aryan is among the men sitting and waiting to speak with a legal aid. He's one of tens of thousands of Afghan evacuees waiting for his humanitarian parole to be extended. Like everyone we interviewed for this story, he gave his first name because he's worried about the safety of his family. Humanitarian parole gets Arian food stamps, Medicaid, and most importantly, the ability to work. He's been driving for an app-based food delivery service for months, but he just got a text from them.
12: Right
13: now, we receive a text message from the company that your work authorization is going to expire. Maybe we close your platform.
5: Center translator Nikibala Assas explains Aryan was told if he can't get the company proof his immigration status is secure, he'll be terminated. This man's work authorization expires on September 21st, and in Texas that means his driver's license will also expire and could take months to renew with new documents, leaving the real possibility that he won't be able to send money back to his wife and child in Afghanistan or afford his rent here. Yes, I worried
14: really
13: like a Regarding this issue, because I can, I will be cannot work. So I have a family in Afghanistan. I want to support them. If I don't have a job, I don't have a work. So how can I? I have a lot of expense here also in Afghanistan also. So I'm worried and I'm very concerned about it.
5: A DHS official told NPR they were processing applications and extensions quickly, but had little power over how states issue licenses. The state has no expedited process for Afghans.
15: Okay, let me just read through this all one more time and make sure that we didn't miss anything and then we can sign it.
5: A line to speak to attorney Alex Kraus spills into the lobby. Kraus has been volunteering here since May to help Afghans.
15: Some days I'll be sitting in here like, and it's just non-stop until the place closes. I think right now it's going to be busy like this for a while, especially if they're sending those letters out.
6: Kraus
5: says it's a complicated process. Afghans who already applied for asylum or for another immigration status were automatically considered for an extension but thousands of others had to use a form that they described as confusing.
15: So you have to select this option that says applying for re-entry into the United States, but they're already here.
5: The form is used for many things, including as a request to
15: return from travel abroad. And the, the fact is you wouldn't know that unless you visited one web page on the Immigration Services website, right? There's no like affirmative thing that they've done to make people know that not only they need to fill out this form, but they need to fill it out incorrectly.
16: Please have a seat, sir. Feel free to
15: close the door.
5: Center director Margaret Constantino speaks with Huari, an evacuee who works for a food preparation business. He likes the job.
14: It's good for me. Now I'm maybe
16: two months, I'm
5: supervisor, now I'm training. He recently got an email from the government that he thinks is important and came to the office to print it off.
16: Yes, and it says, will if your automatic extension is for
1: 540 days so you're not going to lose your job
5: okay that's welcome news for a room filled with other men waiting for some indication they belong here for npr news i'm paul flavin san antonio
10: After Hurricane Idalia made landfall in Florida, it continued at hurricane strength through the dense forests of South Georgia. The storm took down a lot of trees in the city of Valdosta, many on private property. As Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, homeowners are fielding a flood of offers for help.
17: There's always chainsaws once a storm like Idalia moves out. But once the city of Valdosta clears the roads, it gets quiet. That's because local governments are only responsible for public property. What's in your yard, or in the case of Valdosta resident James LaPlante, what's stuck in your roof is your problem. But LaPlante says he's had no shortage of people willing to help him out for a price. We had as many as, you know, 10 or 12 business cards just left on our door. Yeah, it just uh, the number of people that descend upon you and kind of charge exorbitant rates is breathtaking plant is waiting on a local business he's used before, but Adalia just left too much timber on the ground in South Georgia for locals only. It's a literal windfall for tree service companies from around the region. Doug Shramplin traveled up from Florida to look for tree removal work. He's cruising, going door to door. He has a pitch.
18: You want the trees off as soon as possible. You want to maintain the moisture. You don't want, you know, mold or stuff setting into houses.
17: He's hoping that persuades. And what's the cost?
18: Yeah, it's, it's different for different companies, um, but I think bare minimum is probably 1500 bucks an hour. An hour? An hour, yeah. We're finding that a lot of people in the area don't really have the money to spend on things like this.
17: And this is dangerous work. Tragically, Georgia's only Adalia-related death was of a man clearing a tree on his own. So people in Valdosta have to weigh their options.
19: When 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 you're 79 years old, you get tired very easily.
17: (laughs) That's Valdosta homeowner Bob Lee. He's got a bulletin board full of tree service business cards too. Oh, I've I've had people tell me up to, when they thought I was gonna have insurance, they were up to $4,500. $4,500, that's just for one tree resting on the corner of his roof. Lee finally found someone to remove it for $800. But he also has to do something about his other tree that fell on his neighbor's roof. Mentally, we're really whacked out. Officials have been warning residents about sketchy tree work. They say to watch out for people who want payment up front, who could literally cut and run. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Valdosta, Georgia.
6: You are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, we'll hear how asylum seekers who are coming to the U.S. from majority Muslim countries are getting imprisoned at a disproportionately high rate in one district in Texas. That story is in about 15 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BassBerry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com. On Wall Street, the first trading day of the new
0: month starts with some modest gains. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent. It posted its best week since July. S&P rose a little bit, about two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq ended
9: pretty much flat. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th franklinparkzoo.org. And Arts Thursdays at Harvard and ART. Welcome Little Amal, a renowned symbol of human rights on Harvard Yard, September 7th at 6 p.m. amrep.org. It's the Red Sox and Royals doing
0: it up in Kansas City this weekend. Tonight is the opening of the three-game series. The Red Sox have put James Paxton on the mound against Jordan Lyles for the Royals. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has the mighty nice holiday weekend forecast.
16: What a spectacular stretch of weather after highs in the 70s today. Tonight will be clear and cool with a low around 60. Tomorrow we'll see sunshine to start the day, then some building afternoon clouds high around 80. It could be a brief passing shower Saturday night, and then we'll be more humid on Sunday and warmer too, highs in the mid-80s. We could touch 90 in a few spots north and west of the city. A very similar day on Labor Day, sun and clouds, highs in the mid to upper 80s.
0: In the Boston area, 73 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 420.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
10: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro.
20: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
6: As the academic year gets underway, schools and families are facing a drug crisis unlike any they've seen before. Fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of all teen overdose deaths in 2021. That is according to data from the CDC. A lot of those teens thought they were taking prescription pills like Percocet or Valium, but the pills didn't come from any pharmacy, they were counterfeits that contained deadly doses of the synthetic opioid. This fall, NPR is looking at the role schools can play in saving students' lives. This first story in that series comes from WFYI's Lee Gaines in Indianapolis.
21: Avery Califatis lost her cousin Aiden to a fentanyl overdose nearly three years ago. She was devastated by his death and also frustrated by what she saw as a lack of information about the fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills killing teens across the country.
22: I was honestly
21: like pretty angry that this wasn't talked about more. Califatis is an 18-year-old from the San Francisco Bay Area. She says she knew nothing about fentanyl until it killed her family member. As I became more aware of it through my cousin's death, I really saw a big need for more education, both among parents and especially teens. Her cousin Aiden had just graduated high school. He thought he was taking Percocet, but the pill contained a deadly dose of fentanyl. Just two milligrams can kill you. The number of teen overdose deaths related to fentanyl nearly tripled from 2019 to 2021. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. As the academic year gets underway, schools across the country, from Tennessee to Texas, Maryland to California, are grappling with this fentanyl crisis.
18: Never would I have imagined that students would today have contact with a substance where even just a small bit of a pill could kill you.
21: That's Alberto Carvalho, the superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. He says schools can't ignore this crisis.
18: If our students are having contact with these substances, then uh, we need to be active agents, active participants in the solution.
21: He says LAUSD is stocking Narcan in its school buildings. That's a medicine that reverses opioid overdoses. The district is also warning students and parents about fentanyl-laced pills. But drug education across the country is not standardized and it's oftentimes outdated. A national survey of teens from 2021 found only 60 percent reported they'd had drug or alcohol education in school.
23: We need to revive drug education in America. You know, Way we need to Narcan drug education. We need to breathe life into it, bring it back.
21: Ed Ternan, a father from Pasadena, California, lost his son Charlie to a fentanyl overdose three years ago. After Charlie's death, Ternan and his wife founded the nonprofit Song for Charlie to educate teens about fentanyl. Ternan says it's time for schools to make fentanyl awareness a priority.
23: I think the fentanyl crisis is an inflection point in our national conversation about drugs. It's forced us to look in the mirror and acknowledge our shortcomings and say, we got to do better.
21: And education leaders say this isn't just a school crisis.
24: We can't possibly do this alone.
21: Becky Pringle is the president of the National Education Association, the nation's largest teachers union.
24: So it's not just educators in schools, it's parents and families. It's the communities themselves. It's every level of government we have to come together. Too often, the ills of society find a way to our schoolhouse doors, but the resources of society don't.
21: Caliphatus, the teenager from the Bay Area, is trying to do her part. She founded Project One Life. It's a youth-led nonprofit that encourages teens to talk about the fentanyl crisis with each other. She says there's so much schools could do to help. They have the potential to get a life-saving message to millions of kids. Having these conversations and having them right can be the difference between life and death. For
6: NPR News, I'm Lee Gaines. And NPR's Alyssa Nadwerny and Sequoia Carrillo contributed to this report.
10: Wildfires in northern Greece have now burned through an area roughly the size of New York City. The fires in this border region with Turkey are the largest the European Union has ever recorded. As Lydia Emanolidou reports, many are asking what more could be done to prevent and fight them.
25: It's just past noon in the village of Avondas and the air is still smoky from the fires that surrounded and tore through parts of the village. (laughs) We haven't slept in 10 days, (laughs) says retiree Vespna Badaghelu. Her house is still standing, but her dog was severely injured and probably won't survive. She almost bursts into tears as she explains that things would be way worse if locals like the village chairman hadn't stepped in to extinguish the fires. We could have all died, she says. People in this village lost homes, warehouses, wheat and sunflower fields, cows and sheep. At the fire service headquarters in Alexandrupolis, the regional capital, the scene is somewhat chaotic. Crews are suiting up, Filling water tanks and scrambling to get to new and reignited fires. Firefighters have been struggling to suppress uncontrollable blazes for more than a week.
14: We're trying for the best. We have a lot of problems.
25: Cardiophiles Lulosidis heads the Regional Firefighters Association. He says those problems include. Dry conditions after successive heat waves, also strong and shifting winds, which fanned and spread the flames. But the biggest problem, Leliosidis says, is firefighter shortages. He says crews here have reached their limits.
1: Our mind and our soul want to go to fire, but our body its uh, very tired.
25: Some say the Greek government hasn't done enough to prepare. Nick Malkoutis is with the political and economic analysis website Macropolis.
23: The government's line is that uh, it's done as much as it could, but uh, simply the, the the threat has uh, become bigger as a result of the uh, extreme weather.
25: Greece's right-leaning government has suggested that undocumented migrants crossing from the nearby Turkish border may have ignited the fires. Malkutisa's finger-pointing and political sparring over wildfire preparation and response are not new.
23: This back and forth has existed for for decades without any coalescing over some kind of uh, national uh,
25: plan. He says sadly that means Greece still doesn't have a clear plan on how to protect its forests and how to prepare for what are bound to be more challenging conditions in the future because of climate change.
26: I would like to... To don't be in this condition, of course, our place. So to prepare for this.
25: Valia KeliDou helps run her family's olive oil business called Kiklopas. I meet her at their factory and storage facility, where they have more than 30 tons of extra virgin olive oil. At least 1,000 of her family's 13,000 olive trees have burned. On our drive to see the damage to their olive grove nearby, Kelidu lets out a deep sigh. Oh. It hurts my soul, she says. Gelidus's extreme temperatures caused by climate change were already affecting olive tree yields. Back in the village of Avondas, George Hazegyoriou, the village chairman, says other industries like logging will also suffer. <laughs> He says he was almost done setting up hiking trails on the village's mountains, a project he hoped would boost the region's nascent tourism industry. Visitors had started to come, but now the mountains have burned. And he says the impact on the local economy is hard for him to fathom. For NPR News, I'm Lydia Menoulidou in Avandas, Greece.
6: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Former Red Sox star Bill Lee is said to be in good spirits after a health scare at Polar Park prior to last night's Woo Sox game in Worcester. 76-year-old Lee fell ill while he was playing catch in the outfield. He was then rushed to UMass Medical Center. The Woo Sox said today that doctors are running more tests. The spaceman was at the game to throw out the first pitch and sign autographs. Lee made it to the Red Sox Hall of Fame in 2008. Red Sox and Royals do it up in Kansas
9: City this weekend. Tonight is the opening night of a three-game series. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Martha's Vineyard International Film Fest, September 5th through 10th at Martha's Vineyard Film Center, mvfilmfest.com, funded in part by the Mass Office of Travel and Tourism, and Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive, directtire.com.
27: Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition.
9: Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR.
27: You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite
0: all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it
27: look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be
6: really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned
0: into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org.
28: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is traveling to Florida tomorrow to visit areas impacted by Hurricane Idalia. Sierra Sowers of member station WUTF reports from Florida's Big Bend where the storm made landfall.
29: The Steenhatchie marina was bustling with community members covered in sludge as they worked to clean up their docks. Crystal Pesic said
30: she was overwhelmed by how many people came together to restore their home. We are family. We're friends. This is my home. We're not looking at this as a burden. You know, it's like, thank you, Lord, that you saved us all from total disaster. And now here we are. We're able to help each other, and we can help those who got hit worse.
29: Earlier, Governor Ron DeSantis joined first responders, power linemen, and FEMA to announce the state would provide additional support in recovery efforts. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Sowers in Steenhatchie, Florida.
28: The labor, demar- the labor market is holding steady as we head into the long holiday weekend. Employers added a solid 187,000 jobs last month. That's a modest pickup from July. Transportation showed a loss of jobs due to the shutdown of the yellow trucking company, while employment in movie production was also down because of the ongoing writers and actors strikes. Chief economist Gus Fauché of PNC Financial says the job market remains resilient, but he doesn't expect the Fed policymakers to raise rates again when they meet September 19th and 20th.
31: I
32: think that given the slowing in job growth that we've seen, in particular the the, uh, downward revisions to employment in June and July, I think the Fed does not raise the Fed funds rate when they meet in a few weeks.
28: Job gains for June and July were revised lower today, but workers are still in strong demand. Average wages compared to a year ago were up more than 4%, outpacing inflation. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is halting plans by UMass Memorial Health to close the maternity ward at its Lemonster Hospital later this month. In a letter today, the department calls the plan inadequate and fails to meet the transportation needs of patients. The state also criticized UMass Memorial Health for not properly soliciting community feedback about the plan closure. UMass Memorial says it will address the health department's concerns and is committed to preserving equitable access to maternity care in the region. Brockton School Committee voted this afternoon to appoint an acting superintendent as the city grapples with a large budget deficit. Superintendent Michael Thomas took medical leave after the public learned the budget was short an additional $14 million. That's on top of the $18 million deficit that led to layoffs of more than 130 teachers and staff members. Massachusetts U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, along with Congressman Bill Keating, are calling on the Biden administration to fund the work to replace the aging Cape Cod bridges. In a letter to Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the lawmakers point out that the Sagamore and Bourne bridges are the only bridges to the Cape and are used by 35 million vehicles every year. The Army Corps of Engineers issued a report that shows repairing the bridges will be more costly than replacing them. Right now, traffic is backing up at the bridges on the Cape as people get away for the long holiday weekend. On Route 3, approaching the Sagamore, there's a -a two-and-a-half-mile backup. Over at the Bourne, there's also a -a two-and-a-half-mile backup. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. The struggling Red Sox kick off a six-game road trip tonight in Kansas City against the Royals, who have the second-worst record in Major League Baseball. Southpaw James Paxton starts for Boston. It's Jordan Lyles for the Royals. In the forecast, hope you get some outdoor time this weekend. Sunshine from today leads to a clear night tonight, falling to the mid-50s again. Tomorrow's sunny, and on the holiday Monday, bright sunshine until some clouds waft in each day, giving the sunshine some competition. Weekend should turn clammy, with highs climbing to the mid-80s by Sunday, staying there on Labor Day Monday. In the Boston area now, 73 degrees at
20: 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
6: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After months of grueling ground combat and artillery battles, Ukraine's military says it is making real progress in the South. They've punched through the first and strongest of three defensive lines built by Russia. What is not clear is whether they will be able to gain more ground before autumn rains turn the battlefield to mud. And Piers Brian Mann joins me from Kyiv. Hey there, Brian.
8: Hey, Mayor Louise.
6: Okay, so just take us to this moment. What is happening and how significant is it?
8: Yeah, what Ukrainian officials say is that they have finally secured a small but really important town called Robotne that Russia had been using as a logistics base and it anchored Part of that big defensive line that Russia built using trenches and a lot of landmines and artillery. Capturing Robotne meant a long bloody fight. But speaking today, Andriy Kovalov, a spokesman for Ukraine's general staff, said Ukrainian forces are already widening that breach. And what he's saying there, Mary Louise, is that Ukrainian forces have been able to advance to two nearby villages, flanking Robotne, and then they're using artillery to target Russians in the next defensive line. So we're not seeing a huge breakthrough here. There's no route, you know, with Russians in full retreat. But mm. the Ukrainians say this is meaningful progress.
6: Meaningful progress. So what is the, what is the next move? Where do things go from here?
8: Well, we're watching this closely. NPR was able to reach a Ukrainian officer today with a ground unit taking part in this fight. And for security reasons, we're not disclosing his name. He expects the next major goal is going to be a bigger town called Tokmak, about 20 miles to the south. And he says if Ukrainian forces can get there, it would put them in artillery range of the Melitopol Airport, uh, which is another 50 miles south. Uh, This is kind of a step-by-step process. Melitopol, though, is the big goal. It's a Russian-occupied city on the Sea of Azov. It's crucial to supplying Russian forces all the way to the Crimean Peninsula. So if Ukraine can pull that off, it'll it'll be a big win.
6: Yeah. Okay. And so, again, Ukraine has fought through this first important Russian defensive line. This was a big one. What What is the state of Russian forces of the opposition they're facing now?
8: Well, what we're hearing is that the conditions on the ground are still ugly. Russians have bungled a lot of operations throughout this war. But by all accounts, these defensive lines they've built are effective and deadly. And our Ukrainian military source, Nurobotna, told us that the fighting ahead is expected to be brutal. Uh, It's very difficult to advance further, he told us. I'm not going to predict our chances, he said. Our infantry is suffering significant losses from enemy artillery and there are a lot of enemy drones he also said mary louise that russia has been gun using larger smart bombs targeting ukrainian positions on that battlefield
6: Hmm. to give people a a point to focus on on the map of ukraine i want to note this battle is taking place about 50 miles from zaporizhia the big nuclear reactor that russian troops have occupied for more than a year what is happening there
8: yeah i was at a gathering yesterday with petro kotyan head of ukraine's nuclear power utility And he said the situation at Zaporizhia, Europe's biggest nuclear reactor complex, is incredibly dangerous.
15: Unfortunately, it is a degradation everywhere. We are talking about uh, radiation safety. Everything is degraded, equipment, components, and uh, personnel. Everything is in very bad condition.
8: And Kotian says all the reactors at Zaporizhia have been shut down, Mary Louise, so he's not worried about a full-scale Chernobyl-like disaster. But he points out there are Russian troops, Russian artillery all around that reactor complex now. Ukraine is calling on the international community to demand more inspections to assess risks there. But uh, of course, that's hard to do with this battle underway. Thank you,
6: Brian. Thank you. And Piers Brian Mann reporting from Kiev.
10: In Del Rio, Texas, federal prosecutors have charged more than 200 migrants who crossed the border with violating an obscure law. And here's what's odd. Even though less than 5% of the people who cross the U.S.-Mexico border are from Muslim-majority countries, an LA Times investigation finds that more than 60% of the people charged in these cases are from those countries, places like Afghanistan, Syria, Iran, and Mali. Journalist Hamid Al-Yaziz did this reporting for the LA Times. Welcome back to All
27: Things Considered. Thank you for having me.
10: What is this almost forgotten law that people were being prosecuted under?
27: Yeah, it's called 1459, and it basically criminalizes anybody who crosses the border at not a formal checkpoint, like a port of entry, and doesn't report their arrival. It really stretches back to the late 1980s and was aimed at drug trafficking, not uh, controlling uh, necessarily migration and asylum seekers.
10: And People who are prosecuted under this law were in many cases seeking asylum in the U.S. Instead, they wound up pleading guilty and landing in federal custody. You tell the story of two men from Afghanistan who crossed the border and then surrendered to Customs and Border Protection.
27: What happened to them? These men ended up spending upwards of eight months in federal criminal custody. One of these men said at one point while they were you know waiting to uh, go in for a hearing in their case, They looked around at the others who were charged with 1459, and the other individuals were asylum seekers from Iran, Afghanistan, and other Muslim-majority countries, and they looked around. They said, you know, why are we the only ones being charged with this? Why are we the only ones being uh, detained like this? It was a harrowing experience uh, for these individuals and uh, they still to this day are confused about you know why this happened to them
10: well when you asked federal law enforcement officials in texas that question why is this disproportionately being used against people from muslim majority countries what answer did you get
27: officials said that they you know prosecute cases based on the information that they have. And, uh, you know, they really didn't address the underlying data and the concerns that advocates and their attorneys and the men involved have.
10: So you weren't able to get a clear answer from the people enforcing this law, but do you have a sense of what the reason might be?
27: You know, we don't know. I think the circumstances are quite interesting. I mean, the federal government has long been concerned about uh, potential terrorism from uh, Muslim-majority countries and especially any issues at the southern border. Um, That has been a focus. You know, obviously, our federal government has been focused on terrorism for uh, decades. So there's extra emphasis on, you know, individuals from from Muslim-majority countries generally. But one thing is clear is that you know, after we went to the government with our preliminary data earlier this spring, uh, they stopped charging $1,459 in Del Rio, Texas.
10: Hmm. Well, what does that tell you that when you presented this data to the government, the prosecution stopped?
27: Well, it certainly raises uh, some questions. I think it's important to to note that while the 1459 prosecutions did stop in Del Rio there has been a shift to that more typical you know more historically commonly used charge uh, illegal entry 1325 in Del Rio and similarly around 50% of the individuals being charged are from Muslim-majority countries. Many individuals are receiving top-end sentences of six months, the, the max. So there seems to be some form uh, of an effort here to uh, do continued prosecutions, just not with that really obscure law.
10: That's LA Times reporter Hamid Al-Yaziz. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me.
6: You're listening to All Things Considered.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. Farmers are reckoning with increasingly erratic weather brought on by climate change. But in New England, the increasing heat of summers and warming of winters could allow for new plant varieties and longer growing seasons. Jill Kaufman reports as part of our series with the New England News Collaborative called Beyond Normal.
33: Oh, there's a, a number of crab apples, some well-known ones like uh, Dolgo and Wixon, and... In uh, Hadley,
3: Massachusetts, my neighbor, farmer Jonathan Carr, has a few dozen saplings in a sort of tree lab. It's not far from his 39-acre apple orchard up on a mountainside. Carr doesn't grow apples for eating. He grows them to make hard cider, selling about 1,000 cases a year. The heavy rains and humidity of the last few years have hit his orchard hard with a bacterial disease called fire blight. He's had to pull out hundreds of trees.
33: There's stuff coming at us and we can see it coming. So what's gonna happen? How do we respond?
3: Carr's response has been to spend a few years cultivating and observing apple tree varieties, typically grown in warmer climates, looking for qualities like flavorful fruit, and an ability to ward off pests. The old fashioned limber twig is a variety he's really excited about. Its
33: branch structure is very uh, open. Its uh, leaf canopy is compact, allows for good air movement within the tree, which will lower humidity and keep disease lower because of that. And the fruit, Cell pressure in these late-season, dense-fleshed apples will actually crush uh, insect larvae and not allow them to develop, so that's like a natural pest resistance.
3: Oh, this, this oh tr- that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and Carr says so. basically nobody in New England is growing them because they're from down south.
33: It ripens pretty late. It's a November apple, so that's unusual for New England, but we're getting to the point where we can you know, ripen, ripen apples later and later here.
4: I do think that it's one of the things that growers are thinking about, What are the new opportunities that might be opening up as we understand more about the ways in which climate is shifting?
3: On average, Sonia Schloman says the Northeast has about 10 days more of warmer weather than a few decades ago. Schloman is a small fruit specialist at the organization CISA, which advocates for local food production. The region is seeing, and will see, more varieties of fruits that 40 years ago weren't grown here.
4: More southern varieties of peaches that may be used to grow well in Pennsylvania or Maryland, or varieties of blueberries that are considered more southern. And they might bring with them some characteristics that we really want to take advantage of, either flavor or yield or disease resistance or something that makes them desirable.
3: Well, this, these are Macintosh. This is On a, top of an, an orchard example. in Belchertown, Massachusetts, John Clements, a tree fruit specialist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, says warmer weather in the Northeast will provide a longer growing season, but that is not what he's thinking about.
34: Right now, with some of the difficulties we're facing with the changing climate, we have new diseases moving in, we have new insect pests. I have to spend a lot of time just dealing with that and making sure that we can successfully grow what we currently have.
3: Because as the warmer temperatures have pushed the USDA growing zone north, diseases are also traveling north.
34: The pests that we're seeing were common down in North Carolina 25, 30 years ago. We're now seeing here more commonly.
33: Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a Vandiver here.
30: In Hadley,
3: um, cider maker Jonathan Carr says when he started the, the orchard, uh, he took a gamble. He planted 900 apples. English apple trees that are now failing in this climate.
33: Yeah, it was a risk, and I think we lost that one. But, you know, there's really no choice but to, you know, keep going forward.
3: Carr says to keep business going, they'll buy apples from other growers, while over the next few years, they plant hopefully more resilient trees. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman. We'll have
0: more stories on the changing climate of New England tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition. You can also check out our coverage at WBUR.org.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com uFund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.
0: The latest uptick of COVID that began this summer continues as the Labor Day weekend arrives with lots of people taking to the roads. Essential information before you travel today on the radio and on the WBUR app. The month is starting up with a string of stellar days. Look for clear, moonlit skies tonight. Temperatures on the cooler side again, about 57 for a low. Tomorrow, breezy and bright and warmer. Could break 80 degrees. May see some clouds moving in for the afternoon tomorrow. Sunday should be partly to mostly sunny and steamy, even milder temperatures in the mid-80s. Labor Day Monday should be the same. Lots of clouds in the afternoon, but some sunshine too and summer-like temperatures about 86 for a high.
19: Hey, it's Peter Sagal. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Wait.
6: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Aisha Abdel Gawad's debut novel is a coming of age story about two teenage girls. They're twins living in Brooklyn. Their older brother is getting out of prison. Their parents are immigrants from Egypt. And the book's title, Between Two Moons, refers to the time period when the book is set. The entire novel takes place during one month of Ramadan. I asked Aisha Abdel-Gawad where she got the idea to use the holiday as a frame.
29: I think part of it is that I just really love Ramadan. I look forward to it every year. It's such a special time of year. And then also, I was interested in the fact that Ramadan is a sort of intense time of year for Muslims. There's this added pressure. It's not necessarily negative pressure, but there's this idea that you don't want to squander this time you've been given to kind of cleanse yourself, right? And it's a time of intense self-reflection. You're supposed to make yourself closer to God and figure out why you do the things that you do. And, you know, teenage girls, my two protagonists are teenage girls, they already do that all the time, kind of hyper aware of everything they do and everything they say. And sort of, I was interested in layering Ramadan on top of that and sort of heightening that pressure.
10: Can you describe what Ramadan is like in the community where this is set, which is also a place that you worked, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn?
29: Sure. Bay Ridge has one of the largest communities of Arab Americans in the country. Many of them are Muslim, and there's lots of different ways of, of course, of being Muslim, but it's the type of place where you really feel Ramadan happening. The community sort of shifts its practices according to Ramadan. So you'll see The streets um, sort of be like dead quiet in the middle of the day when the fast is kind of maybe at its hardest point. You'll see things really start to come to life right after the fast has ended and people are coming out of their apartments and they're gathering. And I think it's a feeling of being in it together. And that's not really an experience that a lot of American Muslims have. To fast in this country can be a very alienating experience. But in Bay Ridge, there's this real sense of solidarity. And there's also maybe sometimes a little feeling of judgment too, like your aunties and your grandmothers are watching you and, you know, you kind of want to be on your best behavior. There's
10: one moment where your narrator, Amira, is working as a receptionist at the Arab American Community Center. And she sees a woman sitting in the waiting room, just eating sunflower seeds and throwing the shells on the floor. And she's like, right in front of everyone on Ramadan. Like, it's one thing if you're not going to fast. It's another thing to do it in the waiting room of the community center in front of everyone.
29: Exactly. And that moment actually is based on something I saw. except It was some um, strawberries instead of sunflower <laughs> seeds. And it was this... You know, pile of the strawberry tops, the green tops. And I thought, wow. Just on the floor? Bold move, lady.
10: (laughs) Bold move, lady. So you had the same job or similar job to the one that your narrator has. Were there other details from your work experience that made its way into the story?
29: Yes. You know, the fictional center in my book is based on the Arab American Association of New York, which is a terrific nonprofit that's really a lifeline for a lot of people especially recent immigrants in Bay Ridge. People will go there for everything from help to sorting out the most complicated immigration procedures, but also things like, I can't read my mail. I just got it. Is this junk or is this important? And then really thinking about it also as a site of surveillance, right? At the time, a place where the community members felt themselves sort of watched. Um, and this, this community center was a focus of, of law enforcement surveillance, as were many other places in the neighborhood.
10: I want to talk about that surveillance. There's a shadow that hangs over everything that happens in this community. And you took some of the plot details from investigative reporting that the Associated Press did about the NYPD surveillance of Muslim communities. When you first read those news articles, do you remember what you thought?
12: You know,
29: I thought As horrifying as it was, I think I felt almost a sense of relief. Hmm. Like, I'm not crazy. Like, we weren't crazy. We're not paranoid. This feeling that has been plaguing us for years is real.
10: Hmm. Do you remember Um, a moment you had that feeling and thought, Am I paranoid? Am I crazy? Is this really going on?
29: Yes. I remember feeling sometimes people getting uneasy if you were let's say you're at the community center or you were at the mosque and there was a newcomer and if the newcomer was particularly chatty, Hmm. let's say. I remember people sort of getting on edge. And the sad thing about that, that is totally opposite to what Arabs want to do naturally. Arabs are the most overwhelmingly hospitable people.
10: Um, right. There's this strong culture of welcoming the stranger, inviting people over.
29: Yeah. Exactly. So I think, you know, that fear of police surveillance made people suppress this sort of very natural part of their cultural instincts to welcome strangers, which is, which is of course, a sad sort of byproduct of that surveillance.
10: In the book, people actually joke about it. They say, like, what are you with the FBI? Did people do that to sort oh, of diffuse the, the tension of this fear?
29: All the time. I mean, my friends and I still do that sometimes before talking on the phone or on text. And Someone makes a joke, just kidding, you know, just to kind of cover our bases. And it's, it's joke, but it's also very real, you know, this feeling that we might be watched, listened to, um, and that we have to sort of really be very careful about what we say and what we do.
10: Throughout the book, you sprinkle Arabic phrases through the dialogue, and some will be recognizable to most English speakers, Habibi, and so on. Others might not. Um, why did you want to keep these words and phrases untranslated through the narrative?
29: I struggled with that, but in the end, I really didn't want this book to feel like it was a book that was explaining Arabs and Muslims to white Americans. I wanted any reader to be okay with a moment of maybe not a hundred percent understanding, and I think that that that's okay sometimes in a book, right? If you think, all right, I'm a little bit on the outside of this, and that's all right, right? Because that's an experience that immigrants have in this country all the time.
10: You know, in any coming-of-age story, characters are going to make bad decisions. And I think members of any marginalized group often fear they have to present a perfect face to the world. So as you wrote some of these episodes involving drugs, casual sex, and other more harrowing scenes— Did you have any fear or did anyone else express a fear to you that it would make the community look bad?
29: I did have that thought and I just kind of had to push it away. I hope that Arabs and Muslims will read this and see it as a, not a criticism of our communities, although of course there are criticisms to be made as there are of any community, but as really a love letter. and. I think the best sort of love letters are complicated.
10: Aisha Abdelgawad's debut novel is Between Two Moons. Thank you for talking to us about it.
29: Thank you so
6: much. You're listening to All Things
20: Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. From BritBox, streaming new and original British series starring Succession's Matthew McFadyen and Game of Thrones' Gemma Whalen. Available at BritBox.com slash NPR. From Mattress Firm, Whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com and from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. Should be a breezy and cool night ahead. Pull up the blanket. Should be down around 57 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine starts up the day. Maybe some clouds collecting in the afternoon. Highs about 81. Sunday and the holiday on Monday should bring sticky, summery weather, sunshine, and some fair weather clouds both days with highs in the mid-80s. For the
35: perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, city space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org
21: rentals.
5: I'm Morning Edition Executive Producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: COVID hospitalizations increase for the sixth straight week across the U.S., but the numbers of COVID patients in the hospital is lower than it was last year at this time, and a lot lower than this time in 2021. Today is Friday, the 1st of September, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, i Lisa Mullins. The summer's extreme temperatures are devastating to coral reefs. Scientists are preserving them by plunging them into a deep freeze. Corals will continue to
4: die, and unless we are replacing them with restoration, there won't be corals available in the future, even if we were to fix all of the threats.
0: They will then use the samples to restore the reefs when oceans cool down again. And don't believe everything you read on a jar of fish oil. We'll tell you why not. It's 501. News headlines are next.
32: live from npr news in washington i'm jack spear president biden travels to florida tomorrow to get a first-hand look at the damage caused by hurricane Idalia, the storm that pushed ashore early wednesday battering a sparsely populated part of the florida peninsula florida governor ron DeSantis, during a briefing today said other areas were also affected clearly you know just because you know you, you have the surge at the coast uh, the, the damage was not limited to that. I mean, it ripped through all of uh, north-central Florida. So there's a lot of stuff that's going to need to be done, and we are going to be here to help uh, bring a, bring this all in for a landing. So uh, I thank everyone for all their hard work. DeSantis will be meeting with President Biden, who earlier this week told reporters the two have spoken frequently. storm also swept through parts of Georgia and the Carolinas. Two of the five people charged in last month's brawl on a riverfront in Montgomery, Alabama have been arraigned in municipal court. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gasset has more.
10: Richard Roberts and four others were arrested after they joined in a fight that erupted after a pontoon boat captain refused to move from a space designated for a riverboat. Videos of the black riverboat co-captain being attacked by white pontoon boat passengers and the ensuing brawl have been viewed by millions. Outside the courthouse, Roberts' attorney, Richard White, said that even though videos of the event went viral, no one has seen all the evidence.
7: You are innocent until proven guilty, and society and social media does not determine that.
10: Roberts has been charged with two counts of third-degree assault, and a trial date is set for later this month. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Montgomery, Alabama.
32: A new law in Texas calls for the placement of an armed guard at every school in the state, but the realities of funding and manpower are starting to be felt. The law taking effect today says there should be one armed guard at each of the nearly 9,000 campuses in the state. It comes on the heels of the shooting at Uvalde Elementary that claimed the lives of 19 students and two teachers, where many districts say they lack the funding. The labor market is holding steady into the Labor Day weekend. NPR's Scott Horsley reports employers added 187,000 jobs last month.
11: August job gains were a modest pickup from the previous month. Healthcare, hospitality, and construction all added jobs. Transportation showed a loss of jobs due to the shutdown of the yellow trucking company. Employment in movie production was also down as a result of the writers' and actors' strikes. The unemployment rate rose in August to 3.8 percent, but only because more than 700,000 new people joined or rejoined the workforce last month, and not all of them found jobs right away. Job gains for June and July were revised down by a total of 110,000 jobs. The labor market has shown gradual cooling in recent months, but workers are still in strong demand. Average wages over the last year are up 4.3 percent outpacing inflation. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
32: The Dow was up 115 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congressman Catherine Clark has just returned this week from a visit to Maui to assess the damage from wildfires. The House Minority Whip told WBUR's Radio Boston of seeing blocks and blocks of ash. Clark says one kindergarten teacher she spoke with was overwhelmed. The emotion in her voice, her hands were shaking as she talked about just wanting help and finding the kids in her classroom. Congresswoman Clark says the federal government needs to make long-term commitments to helping the people of Maui. Local firefighters who battled wildfires in Montana are returning to Massachusetts this evening. They're assigned to the Department of Conservation, Recreation and the state Fish and Game. Earlier this summer, Massachusetts wildland firefighters were deployed to Quebec to help fight the Canadian fires. The mayor of Leominster is applauding today's Department of Public Health announcement that halts UMass Memorial's plan to close its birthing center in the city this month. The health department says the closure plan fails to meet the transportation needs of patients in the hospital's coverage area. The Department of Public Health also says that UMass Memorial did not adequately solicit or respond to community feedback about the plan. The health system says it will address DPH's latest concerns and remains committed to preserving equitable access to maternity care for people in the region. For the first time this year, eastern equine encephalitis, or triple E, has been detected in mosquitoes in the state. The Department of Public Health announced today that mosquito samples were collected in Douglas and Southbridge in southern Worcester County. No human cases were detected. And pet owners are being warned about recent coyote attacks. A Hopkinton woman reported yesterday that one of her dogs was snatched by a coyote when they were out for a walk. Earlier this week, a coyote took a dog in Milford and a Fall River woman was bitten by a rabid coyote. Animal control officers say dusk and dawn are the optimal hunting times for coyotes. In the forecast for this Labor Day weekend, wicked nice. Our sunshine from today leads to a clear, moonlit night tonight, cooling down to the mid-50s. Sunshine and some fair weather clouds around tomorrow and Sunday and Labor Day Monday too should turn sticky and feel summery Sunday and Monday with highs in the low to mid-80s. 73 degrees now in Boston.
1: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts sharing how communities are restoring trust and solving problems on the After the Fact podcast available at pewtrusts.org/afterthefact
6: This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly and I'm Ari Shapiro. When it gets too hot outside for humans,
10: if we're lucky we can step into some air conditioning or turn on a fan. Coral reefs don't have options like that when ocean temperatures rise. So scientists are helping
6: them out. We'll hear about how in a few minutes. Back on land, as we head into one of the biggest travel weekends of the year, the latest wave of COVID is showing no signs of slowing down. So we have called NPR health correspondent Rob Stein to get the latest. Hey, Rob. Hey Mary Louise. Hey, so we keep saying we keep hoping COVID is in the rearview mirror and yet here you and I find ourselves yet again talking about yep, another here COVID we are wave. Again. Sigh. Um what do we need <laughs> to know?
24: Yeah, you know, all the numbers had been going down, down, down all year and most people had pretty much moved on from COVID, but yet a fourth summer wave started rising in the middle of July. And it just kept going for weeks now. I don't know about you, but I've been hearing about friends, neighbors, coworkers getting COVID almost every day. My wife and I both got it for the first time this summer, and so did Caitlin Rivers, an epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins.
20: COVID is
36: really affecting people's everyday lives. I'm recently recovered from COVID myself, so I can promise you that it is out there and it is no fun.
24: The amount of virus in wastewater has about quadrupled since the summer began. Hospitalizations are up almost 19 percent in the last week, and even deaths are rising again, up almost 18 percent in the past week. Now, that all may sound pretty scary, but it's important to remember that the numbers are still very, very low compared to how bad things were the first three years of the pandemic. The last time this year, last year... 3,000 people were dying every week from COVID. Today, it's about 650. Hmm. And that's because we all have so much immunity from all the vaccinations and infections we've gotten that many people, COVID is not fun, but pretty manageable.
6: I have still never had it, Rob. And now I'm glancing around for something wooden to knock on quickly. Um, Now that I've jinxed myself. Yeah. Yeah, really. Tell me how I should be thinking about how we should all be thinking about these rising cases as we head into another big travel weekend.
24: Well, the good news is the stuff people usually do over Labor Day tends to be more low risk. You know, the beach, outdoor barbecues. But a lot of people will be traveling, so they might want to think about putting those masks back on when they're in places like crowded airports and open the windows if they're inside with lots of families and family and friends. And the fall and winter are coming, so the numbers could keep rising now for yet another winter wave. At the same time, RSV is starting to pick up again, and the flu won't be too far behind. Now, unless something really bad happens, some new variant suddenly erupts, it's unlikely to get anywhere near as serious as the previous years. Here's Michael Alsterholm from the University of Minnesota. There's no evidence to suggest
14: that we're going to go back to the days of what we saw in the first three years of the pandemic.
24: But those who are most vulnerable, like the elderly and those with other health problems, should take precautions and their family and friends should try to avoid infecting them.
6: Okay. Some good precautions there. Meanwhile, Rob, another booster. When's it coming?
24: That's right. The best thing people can do is to get one of the new shots when they become available, probably in a few weeks. The new vaccines were designed to protect people against an earlier strain that's no longer dominant, but the shots are still a pretty close match of the strains that are currently most common and will cut the risk of catching the virus and spreading to others for at least a couple of months and reduce the risk of getting really sick, especially for those at greatest risk. We should be getting some data soon about how well the new shots will work against the newest variants that's gotten some attention lately because it's so mutated, but that's still quite rare. And the tests and the treatments still work. So people should test themselves, but you should check to make sure the expiration dates on that stack of old tested your medicine cabinet is still valid and haven't expired. The FDA website can tell you which expiration dates have been extended.
6: PR health correspondent Rob Stein. Thank you, Rob.
24: Sure thing, Mayor Louise.
10: North Carolina's voting rules are about to change dramatically. Republicans in the legislature say their bill is about protecting election integrity. They intend to override a veto by Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, who said this.
32: This attack has
11: nothing to do with election security. And everything to do with keeping and gaining power.
10: Rusty Jacobs is a political reporter at WUNC in Durham. Hey, Rusty. Hey, Ari. There's a lot in this bill. Tell us about one of the big changes that this package would make to voting in North Carolina.
37: A banner provision in this bill would be the elimination of a three-day grace period for counting mail-in ballots postmarked by election day. Now this is a grace period that's been in place since getting unanimous bipartisan approval in 2009. No issues in all the years since then but remember in 2020 with elections administrations across the country easing rules around absentee voting because of the surge of interest in that method amid the COVID-19 pandemic. You've got candidates like Donald Trump, then president, casting doubt suddenly on that method of voting, uh, undermining public trust in the method of voting, and suddenly you've got Republicans latching on to that idea, convincing people that they need to change laws to boost election integrity. Now, here's Republican Representative Gray Mills. He's the Committee the chairman of the House Committee on Elections here in the North Carolina General, General Assembly talking about election integrity.
19: North Carolina voters are smart voters. They're conscientious voters. They will know the rules ahead of time. Let's make Election Day mean Election Day. Now, what's specious about
37: that line, Ari, is the fact that in North Carolina, results on, on election day are never final or certified until 10 days later when the post-election audit process called the county canvas is done. Plus, mail-in ballots from military personnel and other citizens overseas are given a nine-day grace period under, under state law.
10: Hmm. Well, what's another big change that this package includes?
37: the change to the conduct or the way the, le- the legislation condu- uh, dictates the conduct allowed for partisan poll observers Cleta Mitchell is a North Carolina based attorney uh, and an ally of Trump and, and known for her participation in efforts to overturn the 2020 election results she's got an organization called the Election Integrity Network North Carolina has a chapter of that group called the North Carolina Election Integrity Team the leader of that group and Mitchell uh, met with Republican lawmakers ahead of this legislation and really wanted to see the rules expanded for how freely partisan poll observers can move around voting sites. So the legislation now says that they can listen in on conversations between voters and precinct officials as long as though those conversations only pertain to elections administration. But it's very hard to police that in the moment. And Democrats and uh, Governor Roy Cooper say this is an invitation for partisan interference with voters and, and possible intimidation.
10: Well, in just a couple sentences, if this entire package does become law, as looks likely, how big of a change is this going to make for politics in this
37: important swing state of North Carolina? Well, again, uh, it it means that uh, people are going to have to adjust to a new rule. They're going to have to make sure their ballots are postmarked by Election Day and are received by the close of polls on Election Day. Uh, There's also some changes to same day registration. And and of course, you know, you've got partisan poll observers who are going to be within several feet of of you as you're making these decisions on, on Election Day.
10: Rusty Jacobs of WUNC. Thank you.
37: You're welcome.
6: Oceans around the world have been extremely hot this summer, which has been devastating for some coral reefs. As climate change takes a toll on corals, scientists are finding new ways to preserve them by putting them in a deep freeze. Lauren Sommer from NPR's Climate Desk has more.
35: Mary Hagadorn is a cryopreservationist. And she says when people hear that, they think science fiction. Yeah, they think of head freezers, they think of all this weird stuff, but think human fertility techniques. Like freezing eggs and sperm. Hagedorn does that, but for coral. She's a senior scientist at the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Coral need help, she says, because marine heat waves, like the ones this summer, are causing corals to bleach and turn ghostly white, which can kill them.
3: Our oceans are not doing well. Bleaching is going to be something that we will struggle with for many, many years and it's only going to get worse.
35: So scientists are trying to collect the genetic material to breed new corals, but getting coral sperm is tricky. They only spawn one or two days per year. It's almost always at night and it's around the full moon and they're in very remote locations. So Hagedorn and her colleagues developed a way to preserve the coral itself. They took living pieces of coral from a reef in Hawaii and got them really cold, down to minus 196 degrees Celsius. Normally that would kill a living thing, but they found a way to thaw it out so the coral is still alive, as they published in the journal Nature Communications. Hagedorn says they're working on how to make the coral healthy after it thaws. But if it works, the idea is to create a frozen library of coral from around the world basically a Noah's Ark. We have to gut through this. We have to do what is ever necessary to maintain the, the ecosystems on our planet. That can be helpful for people like Jennifer Moore. She's trying to protect Florida's coral reefs with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. This summer, water temperatures there hit 100 degrees.
4: This is, at least in my career so far, the most severe bleaching event that I have witnessed.
35: She says they rushed to collect and preserve coral samples as the temperatures rose. They'll be keeping those in tanks to help restore the reef when the ocean cools down again. And she says cryopreservation could be a big help with that in the future.
4: Corals will continue to die. And unless we are replacing them with restoration, there won't be corals available in the future, even if we were to fix all of the threats.
35: Still, Moore says there's only so far restoration can go if the planet keeps getting hotter. And coral reefs are a vital ecosystem, not just for marine life, but to protect coastal cities from waves and storms.
4: It is not a foregone conclusion. There is still things that can be done to combat climate change so that it's we are not forced to be on a trajectory to a place where there are no
0: more coral reefs
35: in the meantime she says collecting a living library of coral is a necessary insurance policy lauren summer npr news
10: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR
0: News. And you're listening to All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 20 minutes, as businesses try to get employees to return to work in person, many young professionals feel they're missing out on mentoring and professional development by working only remotely. That story ahead in the next half hour on All Things Considered.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Endless Energy offering home assessments for energy-efficient air conditioning and heating. Learn about rebates exclusive to Massachusetts residents at GoEndlessEnergy.com.
0: First trading day of the new month starts with some modest gains. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent. It posted its best week since July. S&P rose a little bit, about two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq ended pretty much flat. Details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. The forecast is ahead.
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities by partnering with customers to help those in need. More information at OceanStateJobLot.com.
28: Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support
10: the
17: programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at
16: WBUR.org cars.
0: Pretty beautiful out there right now in the Boston area. Here's WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce with a holiday weekend forecast.
16: Well, doesn't get much better than this. Beautiful weather for any and all outdoor plans through the holiday weekend. This evening will gradually cool through the 60s, dropping to around 60 overnight under clear skies. A sunny start tomorrow, then building clouds, high around 80, low humidity still in place. We do turn a bit muggy on Sunday and Labor Day. You'll notice the difference. Sun and clouds, highs in the mid to upper 80s, 90 possible north and west of the city, 70s on Cape Cod, a fantastic way to wrap up
0: the unofficial end to summer. 73 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proctor & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From the Walton Family Foundation working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
6: On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
10: And I'm Ari Shapiro. Fish oil is one of the most popular dietary supplements in the U.S., but a new study finds buyers should beware. Researchers assessed the doses and health claims on hundreds of formulations and found many had confusing or misleading claims. NPR's Alison Aubrey reports.
30: Nearly one in five people over the age of 60 take fish oil supplements. And Dr. Anne-Marie Navar, a cardiologist who focuses on prevention at UT Southwestern, says many of her patients assume fish oil supplements help prevent heart disease, But she says the evidence isn't there. We actually know from randomized trials that there is no benefit
12: for fish oil for the majority of the population in terms of preventing heart attacks and strokes.
30: She says it's no wonder that many people are confused given the claims that are made. As part of their study, which is published in the medical journal JAMA Cardiology, she and her colleagues assessed hundreds of fish oil supplement labels. Obtained from a National Institutes of Health label database, they found about three-quarters of the labels made a health claim. Many were about heart health, but there were also statements such as supports cognitive health or joint health. These kinds of claims are allowed by the FDA because they stop short of promising to treat or prevent a disease. But Dr. Navar says the claims don't mean much. For a lot of the other claims, like brain support or joint support or
12: eye health, we just don't even have studies to show one way or another if fish oil does or doesn't do anything from a health standpoint.
30: The oils found in fatty fish, known as omega-3s, are healthy and they have anti-inflammatory properties. And the U.S. dietary guidelines recommend consuming omega-3s as part of a healthy diet. It's true that People who eat more fish and have higher blood
12: levels of the omega-3 fatty acids have less heart disease. But it just hasn't panned out in randomized trials that when we give people fish oil supplements that they have fewer heart attacks and strokes. So unfortunately, we can't recreate a healthy diet with a pill.
30: There is evidence to show that fish oil supplements can help reduce triglycerides. That's a type of fat found in the blood. But the study found that among 255 supplements from leading brands, only 9% contained a daily dose high enough to lower triglycerides. So Dr. Navarre says it's important to be aware of the doses. It's really complicated for people who are taking fish oil to lower their triglycerides, they need to ask their doctor how many milligrams they should be taking, and then they need to look at the label. She says navigating fish oil labels may confuse even the savviest consumers, and her research concludes stricter regulations on dietary supplement labeling may be needed to prevent consumer misinformation. Alison Aubrey, NPR News. It's been almost two weeks since the
6: final game of the FIFA Women's World Cup. And since then, Spaniards have heard about it on the news pretty much every day. Not exactly because of that actual game of soccer, but because of an unwanted kiss that followed Spain's big win. A kiss that has sparked a movement. Reporter Miguel Macias brings us this story from Sevilla.
14: On Sunday, August 20th, at around 8 a.m. Eastern, Spain was on top of the world. The Spanish women's national soccer team had completed a very few predicted. They beat England to win the coveted FIFA World
26: Cup.
14: Spaniards were glued to their TVs, watching the players celebrate. And when the team was going through the protocol of greeting soccer officials on the field, then it happened.
26: Yeah, I saw how Luis Rubiales kissed Jennifer Hermoso in Lifetime, and immediately I tweeted a photo of it with this text. This Rubiales thing cannot go unpunished. Disgust.
14: Patricia Simón is a writer and a feminist activist, and she is talking about the now notorious kiss. Luis Rubiales, the head of the Spanish Soccer Federation, grabbed Jennifer Hermoso, a star player, and kissed her on the mouth as a form of questionable celebration. Many watching might not have known who Rubiales was, but for Patricia Simón, this was hardly a surprise.
26: Well, we have to remember that Luis Rubiales belittled the players of the national team for years. They had had to go on a strike to demand things as basic as a salary of 16,000 euros per year or not to be fired if they got pregnant.
14: Rubiales has also been accused of corruption and inappropriate use of Federation money. For Simone, this was...
26: The shroud that had broken the camel's back, you know. As women, we have all suffered that type of abuse.
14: But things did not stop there. The Spanish Soccer Federation is accused of falsely saying the player wasn't bothered by Rubiales's kiss. And Rubiales later that week denounced, quote, false feminism and refused to resign. People responded on social media, and a new sort of Spanish Me Too movement was born.
26: Yeah, se acabó is a very common expression, as you know, in Spanish and even in songs we sing, se
14: acabó. Se acabó. It's over, says Maria Ramírez, deputy managing editor of El Diario, Spanish online newspaper. Se acabó has become the motto not only of the movement against Rubiales' behavior, but more broadly against machismo in Spain. It was first used by a member of the women's national team.
26: And then almost organically, naturally, on social media, it became a hashtag. Uh, and many people were using uh, this afterwards.
14: Patricia Simone was one of those people. She had spoken up in the past about the discrimination she has suffered in her professional career as a writer and a reporter
26: now that I am 40 years old, I still see how they give less value to the work that uh, we women do. And um, many editors continue considering that the work that feminist reporters do uh, as we apply a human rights and gender approach to, to our information is less important.
14: Maria Ramirez points at something she thinks is key to understanding what's happening here.
26: Maybe over the last decade that we've been having these discussions, these published discussions about equality, about feminism. Those thought there were changes in the laws. And now, in fact, Spain has very advanced uh, gender laws. And with that, also backlash and tensions.
14: The far-right political party, Vox, has made feminism a cultural target. Some segments of society have opposed recent legislation that attempts to protect women, And in Spain, feminist groups and the government keep a close count of women killed due to what they call gender violence, 40 deaths so far this year.
16: It makes me so sad to not be able to talk just about soccer.
14: Amparo Gutierrez is a former professional soccer player. She's now director for the women's division of Sevilla Football Club.
16: For those of us who work in female soccer and know how important it is to win a World Cup, for the Spanish brand, for the teams, it makes us sad that the news is not focusing on the game.
14: She, of course, disapproves of behavior. But at this point...
16: We are bored. We really want people to talk about soccer, the national team, the players, the female soccer league, its growth, its improvement. That will result in sponsorships wanting to invest.
14: Because in the end, money will bring independence from men's soccer. And that's the one thing Amparo wants to see, a profitable, competitive women's soccer league in Spain. For NPR News, I'm Miguel Macias in Sevilla.
10: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. The strikes in Hollywood are causing studios to push back the release dates of some films. A few will still appear at film festivals, but the general public will just have to be patient. That story is coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Listen to WBUR anywhere you venture. Download or update the WBUR app now and tap to listen live. A beautiful night for a ball game at Fenway. Too bad the Sox aren't there. Red Sox and Royals launch a three-game set in Kansas City tonight, 8:10 start time. Should be clear and coolish again tonight in the mid 50s. Tomorrow sunshine, clouds moving in later about 80 degrees. Sunday and Monday sunshine up in the mid 80s should be on the sticky side. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially
2: responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
29: Listeners come to WBUR for insightful,
0: fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market.
19: Lauren
10: Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner.
0: We
29: really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR.
10: For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org.
28: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Texas, a new law goes into effect today that elevates illegal voting from a misdemeanor to a second-degree felony. As Sean Saldana of member station KUT tells us, the offense now carries up to a 20-year prison sentence.
15: The new penalties for illegal voting represent a much more punitive approach to electoral fraud, according to ACLU of Texas attorney Ashley Harris. This
29: is... A penalty that is associated with often violent crimes.
15: Crimes like sexual assault, robbery, and arson. Texas stands out for for pushing ahead on on one of the more, more, if not most, conservative approaches to election administration. Joshua Blank is research director with the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Texas, like every other state in the country, has almost no significant record of electoral fraud. Which means that Texas Republicans have increased the penalties for illegal voting in a state where elections are secure. I'm Sean Saldana in Austin.
28: The United Nations chief is set to meet with world leaders later this month at the U.N. General Assembly. But before that, Secretary General Antonio Guterres heads to Nairobi tomorrow for the Africa climate summit, Guterres says it's clear the rest of the world needs to strengthen efforts to bring peace and stability to the African continent. Speaking to reporters, he said the recent upheaval and military coups in Niger and Gabon only worsen the situation.
32: Military governments are not the solution. They aggravate problems, they cannot resolve a crisis, they can only make it worse. I urge all countries to move quickly to establish credible democratic institutions and rule of law.
28: Guterres says he will address climate crisis issues with the African countries this weekend. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The superintendent of schools of Brockton is explaining why the district has a $32 million budget deficit. Superintendent Michael Thomas tells WHDH that he takes responsibility for the budget problems, but he adds he was trying to help students and staff after the pandemic.
32: We overspent the budget, um, especially in the areas of transportation, overstaffing. Um, and safety and security. I made decisions I needed to make, and you have to make them fast sometimes to keep people safe. And again, that, that caused the overspending.
0: Thomas took medical leave this week after the school committee learned of the additional $14 million shortfall. The Bronxton School Committee voted this afternoon to appoint an acting superintendent. Researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston report the number of women coming to Massachusetts for abortion services has risen by 32 percent since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the federal right to abortions. The ruling just over a year ago allowed several states to ban abortions or severely restrict access to them. Researchers found people coming to the state from as far away as Texas, Louisiana, and Georgia, which have some of the country's strictest abortion laws. Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret government documents will remain behind bars as he awaits trial. That's after a federal judge again denied Jack to share his appeal for release. In her order today, the judge noted to share his, quote, "...disquieting interest in mass violence." Teixeira has been held since April. That's when he was arrested at his home in Dighton and charged under the Espionage Act. Struggling Red Sox kick off a six-game road trip tonight in Kansas City against the Royals, who have the second-worst record in the Major League Baseball. Southpaw James Paxton starts for Boston. It's Jordan Lyles for the Royals. Our sunshine from today leads to a clear, moonlit night tonight, cooling to the mid-50s once again. Sunshine, along with some fair weather clouds tomorrow and Sunday and Labor Day Monday as well, should turn muggy and feel summery, especially on Sunday and Monday, as we reach about the mid-80s both days. 73 degrees now in Boston at 535.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging, Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
6: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Outside of Texas, Ken Paxton is known for the many lawsuits he brought as the state's Republican attorney general against the Biden administration's immigration policy and against swing states over the 2020 election result inside texas he's the talk of the state for different reasons next week he will be facing trial for 20 articles of impeachment for conspiracy bribery and obstruction of justice that is among other charges to get an idea of what to expect with this impeachment trial we're joined now by sergio martinez beltran political reporter for the texas newsroom hey there hi all right so it sounds like paxton is facing all kinds of charges next
31: week walk us through the big ones Yeah, so like you mentioned, the list of allegations against Paxton is very long. Uh, The big ones are constitutional bribery, abuse of official capacity, misuse of official information, and even retaliation against former employees. And most of these charges are related to Paxton's relationship with an Austin businessman named Nate Paul. According to Texas House impeachment managers, Paxton tried to use his office and his position as attorney of the state of Texas to shield Paul from an FBI investigation against him, and that included hiring an outside lawyer, which meant he blew all agency protocols to issue grand jury subpoenas to help Paul. And it's important to note that Paul is a friend of Paxton and at one point in 2018 donated $25,000 to his reelection campaign.
6: For context, when he was the chief law enforcer for the state of Texas, Paxton wielded Tremendous influence inside the state and to some extent outside of Texas to just explain the power he he would have held through his office.
31: Right inside the state, he has a lot of power and mind you, he is currently suspended, but he still has a lot of influence today. For example, it's a good example. Lots of laws going to affect like a ban on gender affirming care for transgender minors in Texas. There was an injunction earlier in the week which would have blocked the law from going into effect. But yesterday the state appealed the ruling. And in the past, Paxton has said that when the state appeals a ruling, while that is in the Court of Appeals, the law gets enforced. And nobody has really tested him on this. So the gender affirming caravan is currently enforceable. And that's just one example. Now, outside of Texas, he's been very active in suing the Obama and Biden administrations over immigration federal spending and medication abortion. Mm.
6: And and let me loop back to those impeachment charges. Has Paxton responded to those, said anything about those
31: allegations? Yes, Paxton has fiercely denied any allegations of wrongdoing. He's even called his impeachment illegal. Uh, Here's Paxton talking to reporters days before the Texas House moved to impeach.
13: They are showcasing their absolute contempt for the electoral process. Every politician who supports this deceitful impeachment attempt will inflict lasting damage on the
31: credibility of the Texas House, which I served in. Again, that was Paxton talking before the House voted to impeach him. Uh, More recently, Paxton has denied allegations that he will resign before Tuesday. He has said he will not surrender. And we are expecting to hear from him tomorrow at a rally in Collin County. That's the county where Paxton has lived and where he rose to prominence and where he still has a lot of allies.
6: Allies in, in Collin County. What about more broadly? What about in the Texas legislature
31: overall? So that's a great question. He still has some supporters within the legislature, but in the Texas House, for instance, most Republicans voted to impeach him. For them and for many others, Paxton's alleged misdeeds are just too hard to ignore. And the witness list is extensive. It includes some of Paxton's former deputies who are very credible because many of them were recruited by Paxton personally, and yet they reported him to the FBI. So for many Republicans in the Texas House, that's where they draw the line. The question is whether that will be true in the Senate, too. But even if Paxton gets through this, he also faces criminal charges for securities fraud. So his troubles are just beginning.
6: Sergio Martinez Beltran gearing up for what sounds like it's going to be a big week of political reporting there in Austin. Thank you.
10: You're welcome. A recent study finds that younger workers benefit from working in an office because they are more likely to receive productive feedback on their work. And as Tilda Wilson reports, it is not just feedback that younger workers feel like they are missing out on when they work remotely.
22: On most days, 22-year-old Chris Stein works out of a bedroom in his childhood home in Manassas, Virginia. It's a cozy room filled with posters, artwork, and lots of furniture. And that is
38: a couch that we bought from some cheap furniture website. <laughs> uh, and my mom had no place for it, so she put it in this room.
22: Stein graduated from college just over a year ago and now works as a software engineer. We spoke over Zoom recently, and he told me he likes waking up, just feet from where he has to start work every day. But when it comes to his hopes to move up and progress in his career, he's noticed some drawbacks.
38: I can't turn like my shoulder and then like ask somebody a question real quickly. I have to like formulate like a slack response and like a message. And, like, some people are superstars about responding, some people aren't.
22: And when you're new to a company, you don't want to feel like you're bugging people all the time.
38: Even when they're, like, a superstar about responding, you can feel guilty about them writing an essay to answer, like, a yes or no question.
22: A recent study on work-from-home arrangements found employees at home get a lot less feedback, 20% less than their colleagues in the office. Emma Harrington at the University of Virginia is a co-author. She told NPR's podcast The Indicator,
29: We see that the effects are much more pronounced among those young workers, among those workers who are new to the company, who are the ones who have the most to learn from their more senior co-workers.
22: Caroline Nestor is 25 and recently graduated law school in California. She's interned at multiple firms with hybrid working arrangements. She says working in person allowed her to meet and learn from people she never would have been able to at home. I would knock on someone's door and say, like, do you want to go grab coffee? later today and like ask them about their practice area. I had so many meals and conversations with attorneys that like I never worked with, and I probably would never work with because just the kinds of cases that we would work on would be non-overlapping. Nestor says she was looking specifically for in-person work for her first job. Still, she can see why people in other stages of their life might be less interested in coming into the office. I definitely feel that it's a, difficult problem, and I also have a lot of empathy for my coworkers who have kids. There's a lot of empathy in workplaces now for coworkers who would have a harder time coming in every day. So a lot of companies have hybrid arrangements. Work from the office when you can, stay home when you can't. Back in Manassas, software engineer Chris Stein has ventured out of his parents' house to work at his company's office in D.C. It's a 90-minute train journey he's only recently started taking a few times a week. But, Stein says, his office doesn't feel very in-person.
38: There's like a few people that are constant, but most days it will be like just me, IT guy, and maybe like one other guy. So
22: He says it can be frustrating to brave the long commute just to be stuck on Zoom calls all day, the same way he would be back at home. Still, he thinks going into the physical office has been good for him.
38: Like, I'll talk to people, like, on the way to the work and, like, on the metro. Conversations will happen, and just being around people, not being in my house, alone, kind of like this, it really feels better at the end of the day.
22: So much so that Stein is planning to move closer to the city so he can work in person more often, even though he doesn't have to. Tilda Wilson, NPR News.
6: Enjoy listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The new film Challengers, starring Zendaya, was supposed to open the Venice Film Festival this week. Didn't happen. The film was pulled from the schedule. The release date moved because of the Hollywood strikes against major studios. NPR's Del Delbarco reports it's just one of many things that will be different this fall film season.
1: Denis Villeneuve's sequel, Dune Part 2, was supposed to open November 3rd. Now it's scheduled for March 15th of next year. We gave them something
6: to hope for. That's not hope!
1: Dune 2 was originally expected to be a huge fall film for the studios and movie theaters. So was another movie with Zendaya, Challengers, about a hot young tennis pro and her two suitors. What makes you think I want someone to be in love with me? Challengers also got pushed back to 2024, as did a new Godzilla and King Kong movie.
7: And if he defeats Godzilla,
18: it will be the end of all of us.
1: Hollywood studios say that double strikes by screenwriters and actors have thrown a monkey wrench into their usually carefully coordinated scheduling, which also included the latest Lord of the Rings movie and a sequel to Dirty Dancing. Sony moved back the release date of its upcoming Ghostbusters sequel and other movies, and the studio even wiped Spider- man Beyond the Spider-Verse from its 2024 slate. Disney says it's delaying each of the next three Avatar movies by a year. But on the podcast, The Town with Matt Bellamy, the CEO of IMAX, Rich Gelfond says he's not too worried about the delays.
8: I'm not exactly crying in my basement in the fetal position. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gelfand says IMAX had 22 percent of the global box office with the first Dune movie and the company cleaned up with this summer's release Oppenheimer. He says he's looking forward to showing films that, as of today, are still scheduled for this fall, including the newest blockbuster sequels and also Martin Scorsese's film Killers of the Flower Moon, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, which comes out in October.
8: Dune moves. We're going to play the marbles. We're going to play Hunger Games. We're going to give more screen time to Flower Moon than than we could have.
1: And just announced yesterday is a big screen movie already setting pre-sale records, the concert film of Taylor Swift's current tour. But as the big movies are reshuffled, the delays could open space for smaller and independent films. Many of them are premiering at the Venice and Telluride Film Festivals that opened this week in a less glitzy way than usual. Under SAG-AFTRA's rules, actors cannot promote movies produced by any of the major studios they're striking against. At Telluride, Emma Stone reportedly spent her own money to attend, but not promote, the opening of her new movie, Poor Things. But because the movie Ferrari was independently produced, its star, Adam Driver, was in full festival mode. At a press conference in Venice, Driver said he was proud to support the movie that's not a part of the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television producers.
14: Why
10: is it that a smaller distribution company like Neon and STX International can meet the dream demands of SAG's wish list, but a big company like Netflix and, and Amazon can.
1: As Hollywood's hot labor summer morphs into fall without an end to the strikes in sight, this remains a very strange year for movies and moviegoers. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: The latest jobs report in the U.S. coming up on WBOR's All Things Considered in about 15 minutes. Red Sox and Royals are at work tonight, launching a three-game series in Kansas City. Eight ten start time. Former Red Sox star Bill Lee is said to be in good spirits after a health scare at Polar Park in Worcester prior to last night's Woo Sox game. The 76-year-old spaceman was at the game to throw out the first pitch. He fell ill during pregame ceremonies, but walked off the field on his own and was then taken to UMass Medical Center for testing. Last summer, Lee collapsed on a Georgia field while he was pitching for the Savannah Bananas. Paramedics at the game resuscitated him with a defibrillator. The forecast is coming up.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100 closes September 4th, ICABoston.org.
0: Clear and coolish again tonight, temperatures in the mid-50s. Tomorrow should have sunshine, at least for the first part of the day, maybe some clouds moving in later on, highs about 80 degrees. Sunday and Monday, sunny skies, temperatures in the mid-80s, sticky both days.
28: It's nearly the end of summer, and we have just one more Beach Book recommendation for you. Here's Hannah Ali.
36: The House in the Pines by Ana Reyes is a murder mystery where the question is less who done it and more how to catch him. Maya is convinced she knows who killed her best friend seven years ago, but she doesn't quite know how to prove it. When a new clue surfaces on the internet, Maya returns to her hometown of Pittsfield, Massachusetts to get answers. In The House in the Pines, Reyes turns a seemingly outlandish mystery into a realistic and increasingly frightening story. For a transition from summer to spooky season, check out The House in the Pines by Ana Reyes.
28: The Beach Book season is ending, but there's plenty to read on our other newsletters all year round. Subscribe at WBUR.org newsletters.
10: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
6: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The novel Yellow Face is about a thief, namely June Hayward, a writer, not a particularly successful writer. The other key character is Athena Liu, a spectacularly successful writer. Well, these two went to Yale together. They are friends, kinda, until Athena dies by choking on a pancake with June watching and with the manuscript of her next book, a masterpiece that no one, not even her editor, has seen yet, typed and neatly stacked in the next room. I spoke with the author of Yellow Face, RF Kwong in May and asked her to walk us through what happens next.
36: Well, June decides to steal Athena's unpublished manuscript and pass it off as her own, all the while passing herself off as Chinese-American when she's not. And then we get into a roller coaster of all the absurdities about publishing, all the scandals, all the lies people tell, and the online pile-ons that happens when people are found to be guilty of wrongdoing.
6: You nodded to something there that she tries to pass herself off as... Chinese-American. She changes her name, which was June Hayward. She publishes the book as Juniper Song, which could, you know, maybe be Asian. She gets this new author glamour shot where she looks really tan, like maybe racially ambiguous. Does she know what she's doing?
36: She's extremely aware of what she's doing, and she's doing it deliberately. I think there is this strange myth that diversity is what's selling and that in order to get opportunities especially in hyper-competitive industries like publishing you have to get your way through the door by pretending to be an ethnic identity that you don't have now where this myth came from is puzzling to me because we know from industry reports every year it's still overwhelmingly in your advantage to be white in publishing but we see over and over again white writers adopting monikers that make them sound asian or make them sound non-white or have different backgrounds that makes me wonder what is it about a different racial identity that can be commodified and turned into something that makes you exotic and special
6: and marketable. Mm. Um, I mean, she has, by the time the book is published, rewritten significant portions of it, created wholly original new portions of it. She's done the research. She's added so much. She starts to forget which words actually she wrote and which words were originally Athena's on a certain level Is she the author or does does she deserve at least co-billing?
36: June feels strongly that she should be able to publish this book under her own name because she's the one who got it into publication shape. And on some level, she's right. The original manuscript was messy. It was incomplete. So the final product isn't Athena's alone. It would have been fair for them to share credit. June isn't being completely delusional when she thinks the final product is something that she gets to claim.
6: People may be gathering June is not the most likable character. She's not the most (laughs) most likable narrator. Why did you want to write her?
36: I love writing unlikable narrators, but the trick here is it's much more fun to follow a character that does have a sympathetic background, that does think reasonable thoughts about half the time, because then you're compelled to follow their logic to the horrible decisions they are making. I'm also thinking a lot about a very common voice in female led psychological thrillers, because I I always really love reading widely around the genre that I'm trying to make an intervention in. And I noticed there's this voice that comes up over and over again. And it's a very nasty, condescending protagonist that you see repeated across works. And I'm thinking of protagonists like the main character of Gone Girl, the main character of the girl in the window. I am trying to Take all those tropes and inject them all into, again, a singular white female protagonist who is deeply unlikable, and try to crack the code of what makes her so interesting to listen to, regardless.
6: Yeah, um, Athena is not the most likable character either. Um, aside from the fact that she dies pretty early in the book, we glimpse a lot of who she was through kind of flashbacks. I I saw where you said. She's your worst nightmare, that she's all the things you hope will never be true of yourself. How so?
36: Athena's kind of a brat. She's also a terrible friend. I really wanted to subvert the idea of a perfect innocent victim. I wanted to turn the question around and ask, can we talk about appropriation and stealing stories when we remove it from the question of race? and athena has done quite a lot of stealing each other's stories she did something very cruel to june when they were undergrads that really has no ethical excuse now the part of her that i'm terrified of becoming is is the part that is so isolated and narcissistic about her own success that she loses any touch with her community almost every other asian american character in the novel does not have very nice things to say about Athena either. And it's because she had this Cinderella story of overnight celebrity, and it's messed with her head a bit. And she's used to being the only Asian American in the room. She's used to being the special token, and she views anyone else as a threat. She doesn't want to be a supportive member of her own community. And that's horrifying to me. I hope that never becomes true of me.
6: The sly winked at, never quite said out loud, joke here is you have written a novel about a white woman who writes about Chinese people and gets slammed for cultural appropriation. Um, It does not escape my notice that you are an Asian woman who is writing a main character who is white. Were you deliberately stirring the pot, trying to invert all the questions about appropriation and racism and who gets to write which stories?
36: Oh, yeah, I think it's hilarious that all of our assumptions about who gets to do cultural appropriation or when something counts as cultural appropriation kind of go away when you invert who is of what identity. And I think that a lot of our standards about cultural appropriation, our language about don't write outside of your own lane. You can only write about this experience if you've had that experience. I don't think they make a lot of sense. I think they're actually quite limiting and harmful and backfire more often on marginalized writers than they push forward conversations about widening opportunities. You would see Asian American writers being told that you can't write anything except about immigrant trauma or or the difficulties of being Asian American in the US. And I think that's anathema to What fiction should be. I think fiction should be about imagining outside our own perspectives, stepping into other people's shoes and empathizing with the other. So I I really don't love arguments that reduce people to their identities or set strict permissions of what you can and can't write about. And and I'm playing with that argument by doing the exact thing that June is accused of writing about an experience that isn't hers.
6: We've been speaking with RF Kuang. Her novel is Yellow Face. Thank you.
36: Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from BritBox, with the new season of Silent Witness, every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. From Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the Doris Duke Foundation.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, 72 degrees in the Boston area. Hope you get some outdoor time in this weekend. Sunshine from today will lead to clear skies tonight, falling to the mid-50s again. Tomorrow's Sunday and the holiday Monday, bright sunshine, until some clouds waft in later each day and give us some competition. The weekend should be clammy, with highs climbing to the mid-80s by Sunday and
9: staying there on Labor Day Monday. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Arts, presenting Open Studios September 9th and 10th. See and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org.
3: I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger,
0: and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen
2: anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The U.S. labor market is showing momentum. According to the numbers from August, U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month. At the same time, the unemployment rate rose. Economists say it's only because hundreds of thousands of people came off the sidelines and begun to look for work. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Also ahead, tens of thousands of Afghans were given temporary immigration status here in the U.S. Now many of them were worried they will lose their jobs before their stays can be extended. If
13: I don't have a job, I don't have a work, I have a lot of expenses here also in Afghanistan. So I'm worried and I'm very concerned about that.
0: That story coming up and the opportunities some farmers are finding with the changing and erratic weather. It's 6.01, news headlines and Wall Street numbers are next.
32: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Former New York City Mayor and Trump personal lawyer Rudy Giuliani has entered a not guilty plea in connection with charges he sought to illegally overturn results of the 2020 election. Giuliani in entering the plea in Georgia also waiving his right to appear in an arraignment scheduled for next week. Former President Donald Trump and his lawyer among 19 people charged in a sprawling 41-count indictment that details an alleged widespread conspiracy to thwart the will of Georgia voters. DA Fonnie Willis, who brought the case, has said she wants to try all the defendants together, though some have been seeking to be tried alone or separately. A Texas law imposing sweeping restrictions on the ability of cities and counties to pass local ordinances is now in force. Houston Public Media's Andrew Snyder reports the law took effect despite a lower court ruling that it violates the state constitution after the Texas Attorney General filed appeal.
8: House Bill 2127 lets private entities sue Texas cities and counties over local regulations in any of eight broad areas that don't have prior approval from the state legislature. Charles Rocky Rhodes of South Texas College of Law, Houston, says the state's appeal opens local governments to a flood of such suits.
33: It's going to be a very messy process to litigate the constitutionality of this law, which is of course why the city of Houston was trying to bring an action to stop it in advance.
8: NFIB Texas, a trade group representing Texas small business owners, is encouraging its members to make use of what opponents have dubbed the Death Star Law. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston.
32: The rapid pace that Adalia moved across parts of Florida, Georgia, and the Carolinas means hurricane damage was not as extensive as many had feared. storm which came ashore as a Category 3 hurricane also largely struck a more sparsely populated part of the state, meaning the insurance industry will also take a smaller hit than it might otherwise have. Residents hard hit by Idalia are still trying to find places to live as they rebuild. Starting today, interest rates will begin accruing on all federal student loans for the first time in three years. But as NPR's Haiba Ahmad reports, the Biden administration has rolled out a plan that could cut some borrowers' payments in half.
29: The Biden administration calls the plan saving on a valuable education, or save. The goal is to make monthly installments more manageable for borrowers before they resume payments on October 1st. Here's Department of Education Secretary Miguel Cardona.
32: We're really looking at holistic approaches to making higher education more affordable and more accessible. We just want to make sure that we prevent them from falling into default.
29: This comes after the Supreme Court struck down the Biden administration's plan to forgive anywhere from ten dollars to $20,000 of federal student loans for eligible borrowers. Hiba Ahmed,
0: NPR News, Washington.
32: Stocks closed on a mixed note. Today, the Dow is up 115 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening, Emily Simmelins. The school superintendent in Brockton is explaining why the district has a $14 million budget deficit that was just discovered this week. Superintendent Michael Thomas tells WHDH the overspending is tied to his work to help students and teachers after the pandemic.
32: I'm guilty of keeping too many staff members doing what I thought was right to help kids recover from COVID um, and provide them the, the support that they needed and support our staff.
0: Thomas says he's taking an extended medical leave to deal with health issues. The school committee today named an acting superintendent and ordered an independent review of the budget. The State Department of Public Health is halting plans by UMass Memorial Health to close the maternity ward at its Leominster Hospital later this month. In a letter today, state officials called the plan inadequate and said it fails to meet transportation needs of patients. The state also criticized UMass Memorial Health for not properly soliciting community feedback about the planned closure. UMass Memorial says it will address the Health Department's concerns and is committed to preserving equitable access to maternity care in the region. Massachusetts Congressman Catherine Clark has just returned this week from Maui, where she viewed the destruction of the massive wildfires. Clark, who is Minority Whip in the U.S. House, described to WBR's Radio Boston what she saw walk through Lahaina in Maui and see just blocks and blocks of ash. Clark says the government has a responsibility to help not just for today but for the long haul. All lanes of Route 6 in Boren are back open. One lane had been closed earlier this afternoon after a truck crash at the Sagamore Bridge dumped gravel all across the highway. That snarled traffic for quite a while, but traffic maps now show it will take you about seven minutes to get over the bridge and travel about three and a half miles onto the Cape, where traffic then eases up. It is 72 degrees now in the Boston area. For the forecast over the weekend, moonlit skies tonight, cool temperatures in the mid-50s. Sunshine and some fair weather clouds around tomorrow and Sunday and Labor Day Monday as well should turn sticky and feel summery on Sunday and Monday as we reach about the mid-80s. This is WBUR at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the William T. Grant Foundation,
1: supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WT Grant
6: fdm.org.
10: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
6: And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Hurricane Idalia made landfall in Florida, then ripped through Georgia. The storm destroyed a lot of trees in the city of Valdosta. And tree service companies are knocking on doors offering to help for a price. We'll have that story in a few minutes.
10: First, as we head into the Labor Day weekend, the Labor Department is out with a new jobs report. It shows that U.S. employers added 187,000 jobs last month. That's a slower pace of hiring than we saw earlier in the year. Meanwhile, the unemployment rate inched up to 3.8 percent. And Pierre Scott Horsley is here with the details. Hey, Scott. Hi, how are you How should we read that 187,000 figure and explain why, if the economy is adding jobs, the employment rate went up?
11: Yeah, hiring has definitely downshifted. Job gains for June and July were also revised lower. Uh, Employers are no longer racing to make up jobs that were lost in the pandemic. They're kind of back to a more normal hiring mode. At the same time, a whole lot of new workers came off the sidelines last month, and not all of them found jobs right away. So that's why you see the uptick in the unemployment rate. That surge of new workers is actually a a pretty good sign. It generally means people are feeling good about job prospects. Uh, They're not so worried about COVID anymore. Of course, it could also be a sign that people have bills that they need to pay, so they're looking for work. Uh, But we have seen a gradual growth in the number of available workers for several months now, and then a big increase in August. That's something President Biden celebrated at the White House Rose Garden today.
7: More than 700,000 people joined the labor force last month, which means the highest share of working age Americans Are in the workforce now than at any time in the past 20 years even though unemployment
11: ticked up just a bit it's still under four percent it's been under four percent for the last 19 months which is the longest stretch like that since the late 1960s and the unemployment rate for african americans which has been bouncing around in recent months was down in august it fell to 5.3 percent
10: when you parse these numbers which industries are adding jobs
11: uh, the gains are pretty broad-based, actually. healthcare added a lot of jobs last month. Hospitality continues to add workers. We also saw gains in construction, which has held up very well, even uh, though interest rates are on the rise. A lot of those new construction workers are not building houses. They're working on commercial buildings or big public works projects. We did see some job cuts last month. About 37,000 trucking jobs were lost after the big yellow trucking company went out of business. And movie production lost about 17,000 jobs as a result of the ongoing actors and writers' strikes. Most other industries are still hiring, though, although Nancy Van Houten of Oxford Economics says job growth has definitely slowed down
12: from the Fed's perspective, that's what they want to see, kind of a period of below-trend growth in employment, which they view as necessary to bringing inflation
11: down. The Fed has been worried that the job market was out of balance, with demand for workers far outstripping supply. Today's report paints a picture of a more balanced job market, and forecasters now think it's increasingly likely that the Fed will leave interest rates unchanged when policymakers meet later this month.
10: So is the Fed done fighting inflation?
11: No. Uh, Inflation has come down a lot, from over 9% last summer to just over 3% in July. But that is still above the Fed's target of 2% inflation. Uh, So don't expect to see the central bank start cutting interest rates anytime soon. The good news is that workers' pay is now going up faster than consumer prices. Uh, Today's report shows the average wages in August were up 4.3% from a year ago. That should be more than enough to outpace inflation. And even though paychecks are not growing as fast as they were a year ago, those paychecks are now stretching further. So workers have seen a real increase in their buying power.
10: NPR's Scott Horsley with Labor Numbers this Labor Day weekend. Thank you.
11: You bet.
6: Two years ago, the U.S. took in tens of thousands of Afghans fleeing their collapsing country in Operation Allies Welcome. They were given a temporary immigration status called humanitarian parole, allowing them to live and work in the U.S. The program was scheduled to end for many in coming weeks. The Biden administration announced in May it would extend the program to the relief of those 77,000 Afghans who risked their lives working for the U.S. military. But concern is growing as Afghans wait to find out their status. Some are weeks away from losing their jobs. Texas Public Radio's Paul Flav reports.
5: Men sit with folders and plastic grocery sacks bulging with documents at the Center for Refugee Services in San Antonio. Many of them need help filling out government forms. A new one arrived the week before, asking for updated contact details. Aryan is among the men, sitting and waiting to speak with a legal aid. He's one of tens of thousands of Afghan evacuees waiting for his humanitarian parole to be extended. Like everyone we interviewed for this story, he gave his first name because he's worried about the safety of his family. Humanitarian parole gets Aryan food stamps, Medicaid, and most importantly, the ability to work. He's been driving for an app-based food delivery service for months, but he just got a text from them.
12: Right
13: now, he received a text message from the company that your work authorization is going to expire. Maybe we close your platform.
5: Center translator Nikibala Assas explains Aryan was told if he can't get the company proof his immigration status is secure, he'll be terminated. This man's work authorization expires on September 21st, and in Texas that means his driver's license will also expire and could take months to renew with new documents, leaving the real possibility that he won't be able to send money back to his wife and child in Afghanistan or afford his rent here.
12: Yes, I worried a
13: lot regarding this issue because I, can, I will be cannot work, so I have a family in Afghanistan I want to support them. If I don't have a job, I don't have a work, so how can I, I have a lot of expenses here also in Afghanistan also, so I'm worried and I'm very concerned about that.
5: A DHS official told NPR they were processing applications and extensions quickly, but had little power over how states issue licenses. The state has no expedited process for Afghans.
15: Okay, let me just read through this all one more time and make sure that we didn't miss anything and then we can sign it.
5: A line to speak to attorney Alex Kraus spills into the lobby. Kraus has been volunteering here since May to help Afghans.
15: Some days I'll be sitting in here like, and it's just non-stop until the place closes. I think right now it's going to be busy like this for a while, especially if they're sending those letters out. Kraus says it's a complicated
5: process. Afghans who already applied for asylum or for another immigration status were automatically considered for an extension. But thousands of others had to use a form that they described as confusing.
15: So you have to select this option that says applying for reentry into the United States, but they're already here.
5: The form is used for many things, including as a request to
15: return from travel abroad. And the fact is you wouldn't know that unless you visited one web page on the Immigration Services website, right? There's no, like, affirmative thing that they've done to make people know that not only do they need to fill out this form, but they need to fill it out incorrectly.
16: Please have a seat, sir. Feel free to
15: close the door.
5: Center director Margaret Constantino speaks with Huari, an evacuee who works for a food preparation business. He likes the job.
15: It's good for me. Now I'm maybe
16: two months. I'm
15: supervisor. Now I'm training. He recently got an
5: email from the government that he thinks is important and came to the office to print it off.
16: Yes, and it says he will, if your automatic extension yes. is
1: for yes, 540 days, yes, yes. so you're not going to lose your job.
5: Okay. That's welcome news for a room filled with other men waiting for some indication they belong here. For NPR News, I'm Paul Flavin, San Antonio.
10: After Hurricane Idalia made landfall in Florida, it continued at hurricane strength through the dense forests of South Georgia. The storm took down a lot of trees in the city of Valdosta, many on private property. As Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting reports, homeowners are fielding a flood of offers for help.
17: There's always chainsaws once a storm like Idalia moves out. But once the city of Valdosta clears the roads, it gets quiet. That's because local governments are only responsible for public property. What's in your yard, or in the case of Valdosta resident James LaPlante, what's stuck in your roof is your problem. But Laplant says he's had no shortage of people willing to help him out for a price. We had as many as, you know, 10 or 12 business cards just left on our door. Yeah, it just uh, the number of people that descend upon you and kind of charge exorbitant rates is breathtaking. LaPlante is waiting on a local business he's used before, but Adalia just left too much timber on the ground in South Georgia for locals only. It's a literal windfall for tree service companies from around the region. Doug Shramplin traveled up from Florida to look for tree removal work. He's cruising, going door to door. He has a pitch.
18: You want the trees off as soon as possible. You want to maintain the moisture. You don't want, you know, mold or stuff setting into houses.
17: He's hoping that persuades.
18: And what's the cost? Yeah, it's, it's different for different companies, um, but I think bare minimum is probably 1500 bucks an hour. An hour? An hour, yeah. We're finding that a lot of people in the area don't really have the money to spend on things like this.
17: And this is dangerous work. Tragically, Georgia's only Adalia-related death was of a man clearing a tree on his own. So people in Valdosta have to weigh their options.
19: When 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 you're 79 years old, you get tired very easily.
17: (laughs) That's Valdosta homeowner Bob Lee. He's got a bulletin board full of tree service business cards too. Oh, I've I've had people tell me up to, when they thought I was gonna have insurance, they were up to $4,500. $4,500, that's just for one tree resting on the corner of his roof. Lee finally found someone to remove it for $800. But he also has to do something about his other tree that fell on his neighbor's roof. Mentally, we're really whacked out. Officials have been warning residents about sketchy tree work. They say to watch out for people who want payment up front, who could literally cut and run. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Valdosta, Georgia.
6: You are listening to
0: All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Marketplace, the labor force participation rate is at its highest since before the pandemic. What's driving the increase? Business news at 6.30 on WBUR. On Wall Street, the first trading day of the new month starts with some modest gains. The Dow rose more than three-tenths of a percent. It posted its best week since July. The S&P rose a little bit, about two-tenths of a percent, and the NASDAQ ended pretty much flat. It's 419. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs
30: you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars.
19: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington, kicking off the new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic directed by Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco. Two generations of a Parisian family are forced to question their safety and sense of belonging in the city they love. Start September 7th at the Huntington Theatre. Tickets at HuntingtonTheatre.org. The
0: struggling Red Sox kick off a six-game road trip tonight in Kansas City against the Royals, who have the second-worst record in Major League Baseball. Southpaw James Paxton starts for Boston. It's Jordan Lyles for the Royals, 8-10 start time beautiful out there right now. Let's hear what's up with the forecast with meteorologist Danielle Noyce. What a spectacular
16: stretch of weather after highs in the 70s today. Tonight will be clear and cool with a low around 60. Tomorrow we'll see sunshine to start the day, then some building afternoon clouds high around 80. There could be a brief passing shower Saturday night, and then we'll be more humid on Sunday and warmer too, highs in the mid 80s. We could touch 90 in a few spots north and west of the city. A very similar day on Labor Day, sun and clouds, highs in the mid to upper 80s.
0: Join us at WBUR City Space next Saturday, September 9th for a special evening of poetry and jazz performances with three-time U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Pinsky. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place, Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. Farmers are reckoning with increasingly erratic weather brought on by climate change. But in New England, the increasing heat of summers and warming of winters could allow for new plant varieties and longer growing seasons. Jill Kaufman reports as part of our series with the New England News Collaborative called Beyond Normal.
33: Oh, there's a, a number of crab apples, some well-known ones like uh, Dolgo and Wixon, and... In
3: uh, Hadley, Massachusetts, my neighbor, farmer Jonathan Carr, has a few dozen saplings in a sort of tree lab. It's not far from his 39-acre apple orchard up on a mountainside. Carr doesn't grow apples for eating. He grows them to make hard cider, selling about 1,000 cases a year. The heavy rains and humidity of the last few years have hit his orchard hard with a bacterial disease called fire blight. He's had to pull out hundreds of trees.
33: There's stuff coming at us and we can see it coming. So what's gonna happen? How do we respond?
3: Car's response has been to spend a few years cultivating and observing apple tree varieties typically grown in warmer climates, looking for qualities like flavorful fruit and an ability to ward off pests. The old fashioned limber twig is a variety he's really excited about.
33: Its branch structure is very uh, open. Its uh, leaf canopy is compact, it allows for good air movement within the tree, which will lower humidity and disease lower because of that and the fruit cell pressure in these late season dense fleshed apples will actually crush uh, insect larvae and not allow them to develop so that's like a natural pest resistance
3: oh, this, this oh, should, that's amazing. yeah <laughs> and carr says so. basically nobody in new england is growing them because they're from down south
33: it ripens pretty late it's a november apple so that's unusual for new england but we're getting to the point where we can you know ripen ripen apples later and later here
4: I do think that it's one of the things that growers are thinking about. What are the new opportunities that might be opening up as we understand more
3: about the ways in which climate is shifting? On average, Sonia Schloman says the Northeast has about 10 days more of warmer weather than a few decades ago. Schloman is a small fruit specialist at the organization CISA, which advocates for local food production. The region is seeing, and will see, more varieties of fruits that 40 years ago weren't grown here.
4: More southern varieties of peaches that may be used to grow well in Pennsylvania or Maryland, or varieties of blueberries that are considered more southern. And they might bring with them some characteristics that we really want to take advantage of, either flavor or yield or disease resistance or
3: something that makes them desirable. <laughs> Well, this, these are Macintosh. This is a, On top of an, an orchard example. in Belchertown, Massachusetts, John Clements, a tree fruit specialist at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, says warmer weather in the Northeast will provide a longer growing season, but that is not what he's thinking
34: about. Right now, with some of the difficulties we're facing with the changing climate, we have new diseases moving in, we have new insect pests. I have to spend a lot of time just dealing with that and making sure that we can successfully grow what we currently have.
3: Because as the warmer temperatures have pushed the USDA growing zone north, diseases are also traveling north.
34: The pests that we're seeing were common down in North Carolina 25, 30 years ago. We're now seeing here more commonly.
33: Yeah, I mean, this is a, a van de veer here. In Hadley, um,
3: cider maker Jonathan see Carr see says when he started the orchard, uh, he took a gamble. He planted yeah. 900 English apple trees that are now failing in this climate.
33: Yeah, it was a risk, and I think we lost that one. But, you know, there's really no choice but to, you know, keep going forward.
3: Carr says to keep business going, they'll buy apples from other growers, while over the next few years, they plant hopefully more resilient trees. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jill Kaufman.
0: We'll have more stories on the changing climate of New England tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition. You can also check out our coverage at WBUR.org.
10: Wildfires in northern Greece have now burned through an area roughly the size of New York City. The fires in this border region with Turkey are the largest the European Union has ever recorded. As Lydia Emanolidou reports, many are asking what more could be done to prevent and fight them.
25: It's just past noon in the village of Avondas and the air is still smoky from the fires that surrounded and tore through parts of the village.
4: (laughs) We haven't slept
25: in 10 days, (laughs) says retiree (laughs) Despina Badagelu. Her house is still standing, but her dog was severely injured and probably won't survive. She almost bursts into tears as she explains that things would be way worse if locals like the village chairman hadn't stepped in to extinguish the fires. We could have all died, she says. People in this village lost homes, warehouses, wheat and sunflower fields, cows and sheep. At the fire service headquarters in Alexandrupolis, the regional capital, the scene is somewhat chaotic. Crews are suiting up, Filling water tanks and scrambling to get to new and reignited fires. Firefighters have been struggling to suppress uncontrollable blazes for more than a week. We're trying for the best. We have a lot of problems. Cardiophiles Lelosidis heads the Regional Firefighters Association. He says those problems include dry conditions after successive heat waves, also strong and shifting winds, which fanned and spread the flames. But the biggest problem, Yolosidi says, is firefighter shortages. He says crews here have reached their limits.
13: Our
1: mind and our soul want to go to fire, but our body, it's uh, very tired.
25: Some say the Greek government hasn't done enough to prepare. Nick Malkoutsis is with the political and economic analysis website, Macropolis.
23: The government's line is that uh, it's done as much as it could, but uh, simply the, the the threat has uh, become bigger as a result of the uh, extreme weather.
25: Greece's right-leaning government has suggested that undocumented migrants crossing from the nearby Turkish border may have ignited the fires. Malkutisa's finger-pointing and political sparring over wildfire preparation and response are not new.
23: This back-and-forth has existed for for decades without any coalescing over some kind of uh, national uh, plan.
25: He says sadly that means Greece still doesn't have a clear plan on how to protect its forests and how to prepare for what are bound to be more challenging conditions in the future because of climate change. I would like to
26: to so don't be in this condition, of course, our place. So, to prepare for this.
25: Valia Kelidu helps run her family's olive oil business called Kiklopas. I meet her at their factory and storage facility where they have more than 30 tons of extra virgin olive oil. At least 1,000 of her family's 13,000 olive trees have burned. On our drive to see the damage to their olive grove nearby, Kelidu lets out a deep sigh. Oh. It hurts my soul she says Gelidus's extreme temperatures caused by climate change were already affecting olive tree yields Back in the village of Avandas George Hezegiotis the village chairman says other industries like logging will also suffer <laughs> He says he was almost done setting up hiking trails on the village's mountains, a project he hoped would boost the region's nascent tourism industry. Visitors had started to come, but now the mountains have burned. And he says the impact on the local economy is hard for him to fathom. For NPR News, I'm Lydia Menoulidou in Avandas, Greece.
6: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Business News is coming up next at 6.30. After a sunny day, we're in for a moonlit night tonight and a chilly one down in the mid-50s again. Sunshine returns tomorrow. Temperatures should just top 80 degrees. Could have some clouds wafting in during the second part of the day tomorrow. For Sunday, turning warmer in the mid-80s, feeling kind of soupy as the humidity ratchets up. The holiday Monday should be the same, sunshine and clouds with high temperatures in the mid-80s. Start the weekend with WBUR tomorrow morning. Hear the story of a retired art teacher who's making otherworldly sand sculptures on the hot beach for the joy of creating something before the ocean sweeps it away. Wake up to WBUR tomorrow.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, whose charitable foundation strives to make a positive impact on its communities. More at OceanStateJobLot.com.